Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. And BetterHelp. Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Let's not waste any time today and get right into things. Shall we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind? The Horrors of the Backrooms Written by Leo of Alexandria You fall, expecting to hit the ground, but you don't. You instead end up in an alternate dimension. One ruled by harsh, fluorescent light and a soggy yellow carpet. The only thing you can see is half walls and endless rooms, all wallpapered in an awful yellow design. Welcome to the back rooms. They have been once again waiting for you, and they have gotten much, much worse. The thought of suddenly and unknowingly ending up in a world other than your own is terrifying. Some describe the back rooms as a dingy office space with no escape. Others describe it as a multi-leveled parallel universe. Some layers are littered with terrible entities that get more violent the deeper you go. There are separate theories for these creatures and what they can and will do to you. The Facts There are eight main levels and three secondary levels, documented at this time at least. Level 0 starts the lobby, level 2 lurking danger, level 3 electrical station, level 4 office, level 5 terror hotel, level 6 lights out, level 7 the flooded house, and level 8 the cave system. Not one of those sounds delightful, not even the office. Just talk to anyone that has had to ride a cubicle for most of their adult life. We are on floor zero, the topmost level. As mentioned before, it is the one with dingy carpets and moldy wallpaper. There are a few creatures called entities. Some are helpful and passive, while most are incredibly aggressive. Most of the documentation about these creatures have been found on scratching on the walls or notes left on pieces of paper. It seems that when you have to enter the back rooms, you fall back to your caveman roots, placing cave drawings on the walls to create posterity for the poor folks that follow you. The most common entity on this level are known as facelings. They seem to take the shape of human males but with no facial features. They are always friendly on level zero. There is also six arms, believed to be aggressive, but there has only been one confirmed sighting of this entity on level zero. Six arms is known to be on level one and two more than any other. It's believed that level zero is fairly safe. The only real concern is food and water. You may find a base or get lucky enough to find other inhabitants, but due to the size of this level, you will most likely be alone. You might find almond water scattered about. No one has explained why almond water is so popular in the back rooms, 
but enjoy it when you find it. Finding some is still incredibly rare though, and you are most likely going to have to extract water from the carpet. It supposedly does not harm you. There are groups that grow and harvest mold from the wallpaper. I suggest that you do the same if you find yourself there. It's better than starving. I didn't say this would be at all pleasant, right? Level 1 is called Lurking Danger, and rightfully so. If you find yourself here, prepare for every moment from here on out to get progressively worse. There are more entities on this level. It is thought that there are not very many friendlies here either. The entities that you may find here are dollars, hounds, and skin stealers. All harmful. On this level, it is important to stay as sane as possible. It is thought that the creatures here feed on your fear and weakness. They can tell that you have been wandering at level zero for some time. The food and water are also similar here. The key to surviving here is to avoid the hounds. They crawl on all fours and are aggressive every time you encounter one. If you do encounter one, you only have two options, run or stare it down. It is believed that hounds, while vicious, are intimidated if you show any form of dominance. Stare into their eyes until they turn away, or if you already ran out of fear, then run as fast as you can. Run into every room you see, double back, anything to throw the hound off your trail. These skin takers are the most feared entity on this level. While normally docile, they will consume any living thing they see when hungry. I would assume they're always hungry if I were in the back rooms. They will then wear your flesh on top of their own. I do not mean they'll take your skin and place it over their body. They will become and look like you. And they can also mimic the voice of the last person they killed. When you are on this level and hear cries of people calling for help, immediately turn around and do not engage. Even if they are not hungry, do not engage with the one. They can be aggravated easily. Eventually, you will see an entrance to level 2. No turning back now. Level 2 consists of mainly dark maintenance tunnels stretching for millions of miles. The few that have survived have dubbed it Pipe Dreams. There is a thick black fluid found everywhere. There are dead ends, locked doors, and open doors that lead to nowhere. Level 2 will be tougher than the last two. The hallways are narrow, preventing escape from any entities that you may encounter. Food and water are also harder to find. The entities are some of the most dangerous in the back rooms. I know, I know, it keeps getting better. The ones that you may see here are called Smilers, Clumps, Hounds, Death Moths, Skin Takers, and Insanities. You know about a few of those, but you don't need to know about the other ones. Just escape as soon as you spot them. You will have to get lucky on food and water. The only liquid that is consistent is the black, sludgy material, which I would assume is toxic. The temperature also starts to rise here. The hallway won't be too bad, but if you find yourself in a room, you may feel an intense change in heat. Some say that it'll be upwards of 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Try to avoid this at all costs, but if you have to go through, make it as quick as possible. 
You may be transported to another, even more dangerous level of the back rooms if you stay in the heat for too long. You want to go through every level, not jump into unknowns, believe me. Which brings us to Floor 3, the electrical station. No surprise here, we are still in imminent danger. It also contains multiple entities that will now kill on sight. Strangely enough though, this floor contains plentiful resources, even phones. It is still important to keep your sanity. Overall, I would recommend keeping your stay here brief. Don't get trapped or hung up on the food and water. Take what you can and find the exit to the next level. Chances of survival decrease every second. To exit this level, you must locate an elevator on the left side of the wall. Entering will most likely take you to level 5, but sometimes if you are lucky, you may end up in level 4, the office. Level 4 will be a much needed break from the madness that you've encountered so far. It is mostly devoid of entities. Like 3, this floor has an abundance of food and water. There are even drinking fountains in the hundreds here. You'll find people more frequently here. Once you discover the relative safety, you may want to stay here. In fact, many survivors have. At this level, you will have to decide what you want to do. Stay in the office forever, or try to escape back to the real world. If you choose to leave, it will only get worse from here. Level 5 is known as the Terror Hotel. Yeah, we would probably be better off not knowing the name of this floor before arriving. It's a relatively easy floor to survive though. The threat here is more psychological than physical. But do not underestimate this floor. It appears like an early 20th century hotel. There are only a few main areas that you'll be able to access. The main hall and the boiler room. There are also entities here. Big surprise. The Death Moss are the most popular resident. Before you know it, they can swarm you, infecting you with their venomous bites. There are reports that getting attacked by Death Head Moss in the back rooms will mummify your insides and out. But like regular moss, they are attracted to light. Stay in the darkness as much as you can. There is also a rumor of the Beast of Floor 5. It is dressed like a man, a suit and all, but with an onyx face. Getting out isn't too difficult. Just locate the elevator you arrived in. It won't be in the same place. Follow the darkness until you see the familiar up and down arrows. The only option will be to go down. You've now found a level 6, and it's going to be a nightmare. It is widely considered to be the most dangerous level of all. It is called Lights Out. If you survive passing here, you truly have my respect. Most people get here by mistake, either by clipping through a false window or a spot in a hallway. Some people mistakenly explore the boiler room of level 5, entering this terrifying void. It is entirely devoid of all natural light. If you do not have a flashlight or a lighter, you will not survive. Human contact is impossible. It seems only you are here. And that also means that entities are low. 
which is the only good thing about this place. The main attack will be on your sanity. You'll need to remind yourself of who you are and where you are. If you cannot maintain yourself, you will become an insanity. A zombie-like creature that feeds off others' fear. You will be able to move freely throughout the back rooms, just not in your human form. It's said that if you can survive for more than 48 hours, you will appear in level 7. There are no door or clipped areas. You will also have no recollection of how you got there in the first place. Level 6 does have a sub-level. If you are being hunted by an entity or feel that your sanity is slipping, lie flat on the ground, and there's a chance that you will clip into a 6.1. This is an empty room filled with provisions. Strange but true. Level 7 will find you in an area of a room that looks like level 0, but in the ocean. Not that dramatic, but there are varying levels of water where you will not walk, and it's easy to get disoriented here. You will be walking and suddenly shift 180 degrees, plunging into frigid water that is now neck deep. It is not advised to stay here long due to the hypothermia and unseen entities. You also need to avoid the thing on level 7. It's believed to kill every other human and entity on this floor. At this point, you will probably be low on food and water. There is plenty of water, but you may need to find others to trade with. There is also a rumor of a cult on level 7 that prays to the thing. Either accept their offer and become one of them, or decline. If you decline, they will still trade with you, but may drug you and feed you to the thing. This place is genuinely terrifying, as no one is sure what is real here. The only way out of level 7 is through an underwater cave. Find it in one of the rooms and consider yourself incredibly lucky. You may have entered one of the last levels, level 8, the cave system. The only hope you have in finding the exit is random. The cave is endless miles of darkness. Entities litter the cave systems. Spiders are said to be the rulers of this place, and it's not uncommon to run into a queen's nest here. Try every opportunity to clip through the floor or the walls. Floors after eight are not officially documented, and as such cannot be described accurately. These floors are known as the quantum unstable floors. Every floor that I've mentioned has a secondary floor. The most popular are the hub, the hive, and the end. The end is a fake floor that makes users think they have escaped the back rooms. This floor is relatively dangerous and is advised to not enter any door marked exit. The end can come at any time. God be with you if you've entered this place. The hive is an endless maze of caverns and caves covered in flashy pulsing skin. This is rumored to be where all the entities come from which means they have to reproduce somewhere. It is also the floor with the highest documented entities, naturally. You can enter this from level 6 or 8 if you're unlucky enough, but it can be exited through a passage directly west of the entrance. The hub is a tunnel with doors on either side, leading to the back rooms. 
At this time, you can only enter level 1, 2, and 3 from the hub. As far as we know, entities cannot enter the hub. This makes it dense with traders. This is another location that I would recommend staying if you wish to live out the rest of your life in relative comfort. So, we now know all the documented levels of the back rooms. Now, the question is, how would you survive? Personally, I think I would call it a day at floor 4. The risk is too great for me. What would you do? Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. As embarrassing as it is, the other day, I had to look up how to use a rice cooker. I couldn't let my family and friends know that I've been looking up this incredibly embarrassing information. They would never let me live it down. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon, Spectrum, Comcast, or AT&T. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure service so your ISP can see the sites that you're visiting. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize that I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and it is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, so there's no reason for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps. Expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps to learn more. An old woman paid me $1,500 to sit with her during her final moments. Written by... Weird Bryce Guy. The idea, as she explained it to me, was simple enough. I would sit with her, talk to her, and share those few final moments of her life. She had no family left. She had outlived all of them. The same, sadly, was to be said of her friends and anyone else she would have otherwise called on for the task. I remember she told me that the worst part of a long life was the gradual removal of all the things that make life worth living. I was offered this unusual position while applying for a job only related to the kind of in-house care someone would provide to such an infirmed person. I suppose I had a look of youthful desperation about me, because one of the nurses at the facility, a tired-eyed woman not far from my age, 
I asked if I would like to make some money in the interim of my application's review. Naturally, I accepted, and I was told about the kind-hearted, 93-year-old widow nearing the end of her life. And during our first phone call, the old woman had asked me to bring a few things. A tea kettle, a blanket, and a book of my choosing. On the morning of that fateful day, while finalizing her plans, she asked if I would read to her, and I happily agreed. I assumed the blanket and the tea kettle were merely items of comfort, two items that would in their own ways provide warmth for her, since she had spoken many times about how she had recently been so cold. On the phone, we had never discussed payment. It had been offered, of course, and was initially the reason that I had accepted the somewhat morbid task. $1,500 to sit with an old woman during her final moments of life, a span of time that she assured me would last no longer than a few hours. She mentioned that her physician would of course remain in the house, stationed in another room, and ready to confirm when it happened. Due to her condition, the details of which I was never explicitly told, I was not allowed to visit with her prior to the curiously foreknown date of her death. As previously stated, we did however speak on the phone several times, and I learned a few things about her. The most notable being that she hadn't had any surviving family, members, or friends. She was truly alone in the world. She had also explained, briefly and vaguely, her religious beliefs, which as far as I could understand, belonged to no regular organized religion, but was a set of spiritual principles and mythic ideas to which she had closely adhered and devoutly followed since childhood. And these beliefs from what I gathered were based upon some sort of obscure cosmic mysticism that she claimed was older than even the Abrahamic religions. She never lingered along on this topic, so there's not much else I can say about it. Over the phone, she was kind, friendly, and surprisingly at least, vocally, for someone so close to the end. I actually found myself enjoying her conversations, and quickly forgot about my original financial motivation. I wanted to meet this woman, wanted to spend time talking to and laughing with her. When the day arrived, I drove to her house and parked in the driveway beside a car that looked like it hadn't moved in months. The sight saddened me. The idea that the woman was so mortally ill that driving herself around had been an impossibility for apparently quite some time. I had never really experienced a death before, never closely, and here, I was about to witness it firsthand with a complete stranger. I walked up the front lawn's path to the door, knocked, and a voice issuing from a speaker mounted beneath the doorbell invited me in. I entered, noticed a row of shoes on a rack beside the door, and removed mine. I placed them on the second of the three racks. The first was completely full with shoes of varying sizes. Another speaker, mounted beside a mirror in the foyer, directed me rightward into a living room, and in there I found the person with whom I was to spend the next hour or two. 
The room was wildly and densely decorated and furnished. There were pop culture memorabilia that dated back decades, and even to my historically untrained eye, seemingly centuries. Sculptures, busts, stuffed figures, plates, framed pictures, and many other honorary and commemorative objects of yesteryear sat on shelves, were mounted to walls, or piled onto the surfaces of tables and chairs. It was as if within this room, the entire recorded history of mankind had compiled itself into both mass-produced objects of entertainment and the prized, untouched possessions of collectors. And sitting amidst it all, in a chair that had been outfitted with a health-monitoring machinery, was an old woman, the woman I was to sit with in her final moments. I introduced myself softly, but her response was loud, surprisingly boisterous considering her condition. On the phone, she had been lively, but in person, her mannerisms and volume of speech truly belied her age and physical state. She welcomed me into the living room and invited me to sit in a chair across from her. I removed the dolls that had been seated there and placed them with others on a nearby table, then unpacked the items that I had brought, the tea kettle and the book, wrapped in a thick, hand-sewn blanket, a gift from my late grandmother. I offered to drape the blankets over the woman's gown, which she had agreed to, and then asked where the kitchen was, expecting her to want the tea as soon as possible. But to my surprise, she told me to set the kettle aside for the moment, and asked that I do the same for the book. She wanted to talk first, wanted to continue the last conversation we had had on the phone. We chatted for about 30 minutes, and although our meeting had been planned around her expected expiration, I still had yet to ask exactly how she had arrived at the time. She made it no attempt to hasten things along. Our chat drifted to tangently related topics, and circled back only after exhausting all conversational avenues. She was youthful in spirit, characteristically exuberant, even though her body had reached its biological limits. When 30 minutes had gone by, I asked, somewhat anxiously, if she would like for me to put the kettle on and begin reading. And she agreed to the tea, but said that she would prefer to keep story time saved for later. I went to the kitchen and started the kettle, fished out two packets of hibiscus tea that she had in the cupboard, and sat them beside two cups that had already been set out, presumably by her yet-to-be-seen aid. The kitchen wasn't nearly as decorated as the living room, but the same motif of memorabilia was still present. Coffee cups bore images of old-timey celebrities, while framed recipes showed classic cartoon characters in chef hats and aprons, holding various cooking utensils. It was a cute, charming glimpse into a past well before my time. When the tea was ready, I brought it into the living room on a steel tray and set it on a table that was roughly between us, and then delicately handed her a cup on a little glass plate. She thanked me, sipped from the cup, and asked me a fairly unusual question. What do you remember most fondly from your childhood? 
It took a moment for me to think of something, but I finally recalled how, when I was seven, my dad had taken my brother and I on a camping trip, and how much fun it had been to have nature all to ourselves. We had spent the weekend fishing, exploring, and watching animals, an experience that was for us closely sheltered suburban kids, new, scary, and mystifying all at once. As I told the woman about that weekend, her face began to take on an even greater degree of excitement, as if she were drinking from the memories and regaining some semblance of her youth before my eyes. When I reached the story's conclusion, she clapped her hands, accidentally spilling the tea onto her lap. She yelped almost childishly and thanked me for having brought the quilt, otherwise the hot tea would have assuredly scaled her thighs. I scrambled up and asked her if there were any tiles nearby, and still laughing, she pointed towards a closet at the end of the room, barely visible behind an antique armoire. I carefully slid the armoire aside, retrieved a few tiles from the large stack therein, and would have gone back to the old woman, if I hadn't seen something odd in the next room. One entry in from the foyer, the living room has two exits, to the left is the kitchen, and in the right corner beside the aforementioned closet is a threshold to another room. I hadn't noticed it before, just as I hadn't noticed the closet, but once beside it, I saw that its door was slightly ajar, and through the slim open space I saw someone sitting in a chair, facing away from the entryway. With my focus on my task briefly overruled by my curiosity, I entered the room. Unlike the room before it, this room was scarcely furnished. A bed, a night table, and box fan were the only objects in the room. Aside from the person sitting in the foldable steel chair near a heavily curtained window. And despite the eclectic yet cozy decor throughout the rest of the house, I felt a strange, inexpressible atmosphere of hostility within the room. I sensed in a way that I cannot describe that I wasn't welcome within the impersonal Spartan space. But still, I continued on, drawn towards that unmoving figure in the chair by a weird magnetism, a volition that I wasn't sure was even my own. Still holding on to the towels, I walked around the chair, not wanting to startle the person by speaking and placing my hand on their shoulder. The chair was directly in the scope of the window, and yet the thick curtains allowed only the faintest of rays to filter through. There were no other lights, and the space outside of that illuminated square was draped in a gloom that seemed unnatural, ominously manufactured. When I rounded the chair and came to face with the person seated therein, I dropped the towels and nearly fell to the floor from the shock of what I saw. The person sitting in the chair wore scrubs, and I'm sure that these had fit snugly at some point in their life, but the fabric that draped from the shriveled body seemed several sizes too large. Both portions of the outfit were also darkly stained in various places, and bore signs of savage violence. The fabric over the stomach had been torn, and the flesh beneath was shredded, the brown decayed skin hanging in loose tatters. The most appalling aspect was the face, or the lack thereof, 
The hair had fallen out, or it had been ripped out, leaving the scalp bald, and between the forehead and the neck there existed only a gaping hole, a horrible, gruesome cavity, bereft of even the remnants of a skull. The head was held upright by some post-death seizing of the body, a faceless, statuesque lifelessness that would inspire nightmare after nightmare in the days after. I honestly doubt that I screamed. In that dreadful moment, I could barely breathe. And yet the old woman came ambling into the room, claiming that she had heard me cry out. Her eyes only briefly glanced at the corpse in the chair, before noticing the towels that I had dropped. Ah, uh, you found them. Great, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to dab the blanket. Wouldn't want the tea soaking through to my legs and bringing me a chill later. Her utter lack of regard for my shock state and the corpse, which I only then noticed radiated a charnel stench, more awful than anything I'd ever smelled, told me that she had known about it the entire time. Weakly, my nerves barely operating in my fright, I pointed to the corpse and the woman looked at it again. Only this time, she clapped her hands and shouted, Bo! As if noticing a pet that she had yet to introduce me to. So, I see you've met Elizabeth. She as well was my caretaker. A sweet girl, single mother of two boys who I've been told are just the best. She had been with me for, oh, let's see, four months now. And before her, it was Yolanda. And before her, there was that young man. Oh, you would have loved him, Marcus. I think that's what his name was. Yes, he was a nice boy. They were all so nice. So helpful. Just like you, Ben. The woman's demeanor hadn't changed. She spoke as if recalling old friends. And yet, on an instinctual level, I immediately understood that I was in grave danger. The blanket was still wrapped around her, trailing damply on the floor. I hadn't noticed before, hadn't gotten a sense of her stature while she had been seated. But in that room, with her standing only a few feet away, I realized for the first time how tall she was. She towered over me, standing at a height that was undoubtedly at least six foot five. And adding to the strangeness of her erected form was that her legs, from what I could tell through the cover of the blanket, were incredibly long, disproportionately so, in relation to her torso. Now, why don't I grab these towels for you and we can head back into the other room and finish our tea? I think I'm ready for that story now. I stood there, frozen by fear and uncertainty, as the woman calmly approached me. But instead of bending over and reaching down for the towels, something she logically would have to do, given her preternatural height, she instead lifted up the blanket and the gown beneath, and outstretched something that was not a leg, but an appendage that resembled a thickly corded drawstring. But this limb was made of lustrous black flesh, rather than tightly woven threads, and moved with an unsettling dexterity. At the end of the monstrous limb were several fat digits that writhed in an undulant, repulsive manner, and with these she grasped the towels and raised them up to her torso, where she received them with her human arms. 
The horrible limb was then retracted back beneath the gown, and before she let the fabric fall, I saw others, a veritable trunk of tallly wound black cords, with which the free limb re-entwined itself in a manner that was as efficient as it was sickening. She then lowered the gown, threw the blanket over the chair-seated corpse, and dabbed the damp spots with the towels. Once satisfied, she had wrapped the blanket around herself and returned to the living room, beckoning me to follow as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Dumbstruck, horrified, I followed against my will, and I was led back into the room as if under some spell of thraldom. I returned to my seat, across from her, and with the mindless mechanical motions of one whose willpower had been entirely depleted and supplanted by others, I read from the book that I brought. It was a collection of short stories by Arthur Macon. She had mentioned in the fall that she enjoyed stories about weird and mystical things, and after finishing three stories, she again clapped her hands, signifying that I should stop. I closed the book and laid it on my lap, while my brain struggled to come to terms with the unprecedentedly bizarre circumstances. The woman applauded my narration, even though I couldn't remember adding any sort of vocal flavor to the reading. It had been fairly straightforward, done almost absentmindedly. I thanked her for the compliments, and tried to blink away the tears that uncontrollably swelled beneath my eyes. Now, I think we've arrived at the time. I cannot thank you enough for this wonderful afternoon. I'm so incredibly grateful for your company. A woefully old woman like myself couldn't have asked for a better companion to sit vigil with her. Thank you, child. I had planned initially on incorporating you into the family. But now, I just can't bring myself to do that. You've truly been the best of all those who sat with me during my ends. The plurality of that final word and the dreadfully vague connotation of it broke me completely. The tears fell, and I sunk inward, entirely consumed by terror. The woman, misinterpreting my fear of her for sadness at her imminent passing, urged me not to cry, saying that death comes to everyone, eventually. Her demeanor then became suddenly and strikingly somber, and she asked if I would kindly leave her to be alone. Meaning no further motivation, I arose from my seat, leaving behind everything that I had brought, and sprinted out of the living room. But before I could reach the front door and return to the normal, sunlit world, she called out, Oh, your payment is on the Davenport, the sofa, and the white envelope. After a brief war of woes, the broken hungry student versus the terrified human, I begrudgingly returned to the room, careful to keep my eyes focused on the sofa that sat just beside the room's entryway. And while I never looked directly at the woman, I glimpsed and heard her awful transformation into something else, perceived audibly and through my peripherals the death of her human shell. My escape the house without having witnessed the full exposure of that abominable thing that had closed itself in human skin for who knows how long, had hidden itself among mankind through cycles of life that assuredly date back farther than the house's memorabilia would have you believe. As I stumbled down the driveway, I happened to glance inside the car parked there, 
and was given one final parting moment of horror. The car hadn't belonged to that old woman. Its owner, I think, was Elizabeth. In the back seat, I saw two children's backpacks, but no sign of the children themselves. In about two hours, I had made $1,500, and yet I would give it all back to erase my memories of that twisted afternoon. I can only hope that the police, who I called shortly after departing, can bring some kind of closure to the families of the victims, and justice to their murderer, whose death I now doubt had any permanent meaning. I saw what lies in the afterlife, and now I'm terrified of seeing it again. Written by Mr. Pagan665 Death is a rather ambiguous topic, for there are many things that come into account when discussing it. For example, it can be related to the cosmology of the universe, our lack of understanding regarding the human soul and its presence, or even theological aspects such as paradise or hell. But there is one common conclusion when discussing such topic, and that is that in reality, we do not know what happens when we pass, or at least, where do we dwell afterwards. Now, I do not claim that I have the answer for sure, but I must tell it nonetheless, for I fear that with every passing day, I feel its presence lurking in my mind, making me sink into a pit of despair. Alas, this is another, I have nearly died story. But unlike pearly gates or fiery infernos, I saw something more ambiguous and rather more grotesque for my own personal taste. It was about maybe a year ago when the incident had occurred. I was driving very early in the morning to my work, which was about 10 minutes away from my home. The sun hasn't yet come over the towering skyline buildings and the old Soviet concrete blocks, making the streets seem dark and gloomy. The poisonous fumes of the trucks and old cars was making the air dry and rather humid, but there was mostly silence as most mortals are hiding in the safety of their bed, where no cold air will reach them. There, at the traffic stop, my car was facing the opposite direction, waiting for the light to go green. The radio played its usual tunes, and ever so, I would indulge in its content. But my mind was occupied elsewhere. For just before me, the traffic light had turned green, and with that, I began pressing down the pedal. And then everything happened so fast. I felt an immediate push on my left, and felt the sensation of immediate pressing onto my shoulder and left leg. Followed by that, my mind registered so many sounds that I could not simply put into an order. There was a cacophony of blaring horns and the sound of radio static the sound of thumping and glass shattering, and the ever so faint murmurs and yells of human origin. My vision had suffered a similar faith, for it could not register what had happened. But I do remember the vivid blurry scenes where my face was planted onto the window, 
and the pooling red that began drooling and clouding my vision evermore. The pain was even more ambiguous as it came and went rather fast. First, there was the sensation of intense heat and immediate pain, and then it slowly intensified before reaching a state where I could not distinguish it from other emotions such as confusion and terror. It didn't take much for me to fall into a state of comatose, where my senses were slowly betraying my body. The last thing I remember was the scent of burning tires and the sound of the radio emitting its final jazz song before everything would be engulfed into total darkness and silence. For that brief moment between sound and silence, I subconsciously knew what was going on. I knew that death was near, and I was already accepting it. The strange part of the whole ordeal is that I may now not recall my memories of the accident as clear, but I can recall what I saw in my darkest of hours. But I do must warn you that there were moments where I cannot describe them in their fullest of potentials, for my memories lately seem to betray my mind as well. What I do remember was moments after I felt as if I opened my eyes and before me stood a vast empty plane of darkness. There is no sound nor light, nothing pure abyssal darkness. For some reason, as if my mind was giving me hints that it was still me in that place and that I had control over my actions. I could not see my hands nor body but I could feel them still attached to me. If I were to grab my left arm with my right, I could feel it, but the blinding darkness wasn't letting my vision witness them. I had the sensation that I was walking on something solid and flat, but again, I could not see it. For every step I made, no sound echoed in that plane, only silence. It was the most horrifying experience, as if I was blind and deaf at the same time. It felt as if I was walking for hours, yet the surface below me hasn't changed. There was no temperature in that place, so I could not navigate even by that. The floor was neither hot nor cold, and it didn't seem to provide any knowledgeable information. I was becoming more anxious the further I walked, as I was scared if I were to bump into an object or fall into a pit. And for that, most of the time, I walked on all fours, having my hands waving in front of me, as if trying to hit or touch anything. Such thing was becoming rather tedious, and with time I felt more confident in myself to simply begin walking as if there was nothing before me. I do not know how much time I spent walking and dwelling in that emptiness, but what I do remember was when I saw these slight shimmering lights before me, far in the darkness, I saw white specters like dots floating in the vast space. For once, something seemed familiar. It looked as if I was gazing upon the night sky, but the stars weren't stable. 
They seem to run around and dance in weird and endless loops. I cannot describe the joy that I felt when I realized that moment that I hadn't lost my vision as I thought, for instead, it was simply too dark in that void. Upon realizing such thing, I began running towards the white stars that seemed so endless and yet so far away. With haste, I ran, and I remember the more I saw them getting somewhat closer, the more things were slowly changing around me. There was an unknown sound that was begging to be slightly heard, a faint distant blobbing and buzzing, some noise of unknown origin. The once flat surface was finally forming into a more unfamiliar terrain, with slight lumps and slimy texture. There was a scent that I could not entirely define, but it was putrid, for it entered my nostrils and was bringing me to a sudden halt. However, what I saw in the distance before me was even more strange. The once flying white dots I could now somehow see their shape and form, but they were more humanoid in shape. They were motionless and they moved around in a rather bizarre manner. From their illuminated torsos, I could distinguish something long was attached to them, as if holding them, and it appeared that when they moved it, it moved with them. As I stared and watched in amazement, the floor before me had begun moving, causing me to fall and drop to its slimy surface. However, upon impact, the floor was softer and the smell was even more rancid. The floor was thicker than water, suddenly, and was slowly drawn toward the white flowing figures. And from there, I saw the true horror that was bestowed upon me. There were towering creatures with long and slimy claws, puncturing the white glowing figures that I saw earlier, holding them upright as bait. The figures were ghastly, and they looked down at me with terror and despair. Their murmurs were faint and distant, but once or twice, I could distinguish the following words. Soul eaters, leave, help. The faint white specters were vaguely illuminating the creatures, but that was enough for me to capture their grotesquerie. They had long and slimy claws that punctured their chest. Of these white specters and with their other claws, they devoured the rest of the ghastly figures. Their mouth was wide open, and I could see no end. What I saw was the light of the white specters being instantly diminished, as it was swallowed by the void of these creatures. The once silent and eerie dark place was now vibrant and grotesque in all sorts of manners. There was the cacophony of agonizing spirits, and the heavy buzzing and screeching sound that these monstrosities were emitting. Around me, the thick and putrid ooze was getting thicker and slimier, and for a brief moment, I saw a faint shadow vastly moving over me, a shape that I could not define but somehow instinctively knew what it was. For I feared, it was the very same claw for I would also be now impaled for other specters to see. Just like a moth, I was drawn here, into my own demise and into this pit of black ooze, 
or in the mouths of these creatures, I would find my very own death. Suddenly, I felt a wet and tight sensation around my limbs, as if something was curling around it and pulling them downwards towards the deep and cold ooze. I was immediately alerted by my senses, and I began pulling and twisting around, trying to flee from these grotesque restraints. The more that I revolted, however, the more these slimy tentacles were drawing me further into the abyss. For a brief moment, I felt as if this was the end, and I almost had to surrender to my faith. But a miracle had occurred at that very brief moment. A wild wind emerged and the screeching of the creatures grew louder and more fearsome, as if entranced by the whole ordeal. They began slowly to crawl back further away from where they initially dwelled. Underneath me, the ooze-like floor began slowly morphing once more, turning again into solid ground. The wind was getting stronger, and I was pressed onto the cold floor now. Around me, the scenery and the whole ordeal was gone, and no buzzing nor blobbing was heard no more. Suddenly, the howling wind was slowly turning into a more familiar sound of faint murmurs and whispers. Before me, the black abyssal walls began crumpling, and there stood a bright fluorescent light that blinded my vision. Soon, towering shadows were slowly taking shape, and with them, the buzzing sound changed to a rather pulsating sound, as if a machine was beeping. The shadows were getting more colorful, as if vibrant shades of various colors could be distinguished amidst the hazy vision. It didn't take me long to realize that I was lying in a hospital bed, and above me, the staff was seemingly surprised to see me. Apparently, from what I could gather, a couple of days later was that I was involved in a rather serious car accident, and that for almost a week, I was confirmed as clinically dead. But due to some signs of brain activity and heart pulses, I was left on machinery until nothing more was to be done. A miracle, some they said, as they didn't expect for me to come back. But if it's a miracle, I do not know. For what I witnessed, I do not know if I would rather die in that ooze pit or be devoured by these soul eaters. Both scenarios do seem more appealing than to be left alive with such knowledge of the potential afterlife. I slowly feel my mental state has been slowly been depleting as the knowledge of such horrors that await us in the afterlife are too much for me. Is this what truly lies beyond the veil of the living? An empty void where dark creatures will draw you like an anglerfish to your ultimate death. Did I cheat death, or was I supposed to roam the empty void and avoid such creatures? Ultimately, I do not know neither the answer to such questions. What I do know, however, that if by any chance there's anyone reading this, Please keep this in mind, for there are things that lie beyond our realm of existence that simply cannot be comprehended. Do not expect any hospitality or anything pretty upon death, 
but only the dark and vast void where unknown creatures will try to capture and devour your soul. For now, I try to maintain a healthy life, but alas, I'm afraid of death even more. For then now I know what lies beyond, I am afraid to relive it again. There are nights when the howling wind comes through my window, and for those brief moments, nightmares of that barren wasteland and its blasphemous mockery of the afterlife comes back into existence. And it's in those moments where I fear more vulnerable, as if death is near, and for once more, I can smell its putrid stench. Today's sponsor is a reoccurring one in this podcast and one that I have a very personal appreciation for, BetterHelp. As I mentioned before, mental health is extremely important to me, and I feel like we're at a point in history where it's more important than ever to discuss taking charge of your mental well-being. And that's where BetterHelp comes into play. They can aid you in your journey by providing a personal licensed professional therapist that matches your needs. BetterHelp is making it easier than ever to gain access to professional therapy services. Their mission is to ensure you start living a happier life today. One of the nicest things about BetterHelp is their commitment to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So, they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. I can't understate the power of therapy and all of the good that it's done for millions of people across the globe. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. You can begin communicating with a licensed professional in under 48 hours. And on top of that, you can message them 24-7 with any questions or concerns you may have. Thank you so much to BetterHelp. Again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Mr. Graves, to get 10% off your first month. I was a park ranger in a fire watchtower, but I was the one being watched. Written by Sunhead Prime. When I was in my 20s, I took a job as a park ranger at a state park. It was the perfect job for me at the time. I love working outdoors. Every day presented new challenges and I got to work alone. On days when I could get my work done early, I would find a beautiful spot somewhere in the park and read or listen to music. It was therapeutic. I had just gone through a tough year. School kicked my butt and I had just broken up with my long-term girlfriend. I needed an escape, and the park provided it. While working during the day was amazing, the night shift at the park wasn't as relaxing. Do you know how uncomfortable the night can make even the most comfortable spaces in your house feel? Well, the pitch black of Mother Nature is like that feeling on steroids. The absolute worst place to sit during a night shift was the North End Watchtower. Everyone who worked there called it the Sentinel, because it was massive and looked out across the whole of the forest that made up the park. It was tall, just over a hundred feet above the ground, 
and was made of old pine that seemed to retain the scent as if it had just been cut the day before. It was basically like a little cabin on top of really tall stilts. However, inside wasn't exactly a luxury box. The wall that faced the forest was one large window that gave pretty breathtaking views but was also really good at giving you feelings of vertigo. Inside, there was relatively meager furniture. There were just two chairs, one for sitting in good weather and one insulated one for bad weather, an old desk, a single bare light bulb overhead, and a small fan to help keep you cool. I always brought something to read or write because the night watch in the tower is dull as hell. It was quite a height too. It took about 10 minutes or so to walk the 10 stories, and when you had to do it in the dark at night, it tended to take a little bit longer. Each story you climbed disappeared into the darkness below you. It could be a bit unsettling. Once you're on top of the tower, your job for that shift is to basically look for fires or anything else out of the ordinary. When there was a full moon, you could see so much of the woods. But when there was a new moon or it was cloudy, you couldn't see a thing. If it wasn't for the bare light bulb in the cabin, you couldn't see anything. Typically, you keep in touch with people on the walkie and just idle away the hours. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I never dozed off for a while, but if you had to come to visit me some nights, I might have had some sleep creases on my face. Most nights, when I was in the Sentinel, I brought a book and read or a journal to write in, basically occupying my mind for the shift and ignore the dark. The rangers, especially the older ones, loved to tell stories about the weird stuff they had seen over the years. People tend to think of parks as safe zones where the most deadly thing can happen is an animal attack. And yes, while animal attacks do occur, most of the violence comes from people. Campers, drunk, will get into fights or fall into fire pits, or get lost on the way to the bathroom. Drifters will sneak into the park and stay in unoccupied cabins or buildings. I cannot tell you the number of times I've walked into squatters chilling in a distant ranger cabin and I've had to evict them. But one thing no one outside the world of park rangers likes to talk about is that parks, especially at night, tend to be a haven for criminals. I know it sounds crazy at the outset, but it happens. Horrible things, murders, drug activity, you name it, it happens. I was lucky to never deal with any of the more heavy stuff, a few times we found drugs to be sold or a small patch of marijuana growing in the woods, but nothing horrifying. But if you put your time in at the park, eventually you'll run across something that will haunt your dreams. Not too far from where our park was, there is a correctional facility. It wasn't Alcatraz or anything that high security, but the people there were serious criminals. It was a distance away. But on clear nights, you could barely make out the lights from the yard along the horizon. But it loomed large in your imagination. Your rational brain knew that any criminal would have to brave the dangerous forest in pitch black before they ran into you. But a tiny flicker of light kept a corner of your brain illuminated. It could happen. It won't, but it could. 
It was near the end of summer, and uh, some of these staff had already split for the year. I was on for a few more weeks, and I was going to get night duty for most of those days since I was the lowest on the totem pole. The worst, I would be on sentinel duty those nights. Now, I know having the least amount of seniority was the main reason, but I know that my boss and a few older rangers play poker those nights as well. Since I had no money or skills, I was sent up into the tower. As the sun was starting to set, I walked into the central station at the park entrance. A few rangers were milling about, shooting the crap. A day shift was relaying night shift things they should be aware of, that kind of stuff. It mainly was nothing. Not a ton of campers in the park this time of year. Just a few sightings of bears nearby. Someone also swears they saw a bobcat but wasn't sure. But then someone walked into the station and the tenor of the night shifted. Excuse me. A woman about 40 said in an overly polite way. She was dressed in leggings and my guess was she was here to walk the trails. My boss and the want-to-be Casanova, Jonesy, noticed the outfit and lack of wedding ring and shot her his 10 cent smile. Welcome to the state park. How can I help you today? He said, his words dripping with saturine. Um, hi, she said, a little taken aback. I wanted to report something, well, maybe report is a bit extreme, but just make you aware of something I saw out on the trails. Sure, what did you see? She shifted her weight a little uneasy, it seemed. I clocked it and thought it was a little unusual. Sometimes when people see a bear or a bobcat, two things that have been spotted recently, they might have their adrenaline pumping and be a bit jittery. But this wasn't that. Um, it sounds crazy, but um, I think I saw something stalking me out in the woods. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Probably gave you a bit of a scare, Jonesy said. We've had a few bear and bobcat sightings lately. No, she said definitively. It wasn't a bear or a cat. I think it was a person. What trail? A sandalwood loop B, I think it's called. That's not far from a few campgrounds and fishing cabins. They didn't look like a camper. Everyone in the cabin had stopped talking and turned their attention to the woman. She noticed and you could see the red rush to her cheeks. What did they look like? Um, they looked shadowy, she said. Like they were afraid of the sun or something. And they were following you. I caught something in the corner of my eye around the last turn of the loop. I stopped and pretended to stretch and saw something in the woods just off the trail. They were hiding behind a tree, eyeballing me. Jesus, Jonesy said. I'm sorry that happened to you. Thank you, she said, her voice going soft. They, they, they followed me until I nearly got to the end of the loop. I started running then and lost sight of them. Jonesy turned back to two of the older rangers and told them to hop in a gator cart and check out the woods for anything. He told them to keep their walkies on and take a sidearm just in case. They left in a flash and Jonesy turned his attention to the woman. Can you tell me anything that might help? And did they have any kind of identifiable clothing? 
Did they speak to you? Did they? They, she interrupted. They made noises. Noises? Jonesy asked, slightly confused. Yes, a few. They made a kind of chittering noise and a, a phantom yelling kind of sound. Possibly cicadas. Another older ranger said, A group of them can scare the fur off a cat. Maybe, I, I don't know. They also whistled, but not like they were whistling at me. It's, it's like they were trying to blend in with nature. Can you describe the noise? She whistled something that I knew right away. That sounds like a wood thrush. How do you know that? Jonesy said, not being able to help himself. My grandpa was an avid bird watcher. He turned his attention back to the woman. Did you want to file a police report or... No, 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 she said quickly. I don't even have that much information. I just was scared and wanted to let you know just in case. Are you sure? Yes, she said. I don't think anyone else was on the trail after me, but I didn't feel right at not telling you. I'm sorry that happened to you here. The park is supposed to be a place to relax. She laughed nervously, and Jonesy shot her a calming smile. Here's my card, he said, handing her one. If you change your mind, please call me. She pocketed it and nodded. She turned to leave and then stopped. She turned back and after a brief pause said, Something else that was weird. I saw this thing on both sides of the trail. He crossed behind you. I didn't notice him doing that, but he must because I saw him on both sides. Unless there were more than one of them, I said, instantly regretting it. Jonesy turned and gave me a Jesus dude look and I clammed up. Do you need someone to escort you to your car, ma'am? No, I'm right out there. Thanks, though. She said as she walked at the door. We heard her motor away a few moments later. Sorry. I said before Jones he could say anything. He sighed. No worries, just don't go freaking out the gas. We need people like her to come back. People like or her to come back, right? Was I too obvious? Jonesy said with a smile. What do you think she saw? I asked. A Wendigo. One of the other rangers said and everyone laughed. Have you read about Wendigos and skinwalkers in day mythology class? I didn't find it so amusing. It might have been her eyes playing tricks in her. If someone is out there, those two will find them. They're good at tracking. And whatever is out there couldn't have gotten too far. A great night to be up in the tower, I said with a smirk. Hey, that's probably the safest place to be, Jonesy said. No one climbs at ten stories if they don't have to. I hung around for about another half hour or so to see what came with the trackers. They came back and said there wasn't anything around the sandalwood loop. No footprints of anything they saw. Granted, the leaves had started to fall so it was hard to see anything on the ground but I trusted their tracking skills. Not going to lie, even with the guys coming back empty-handed, I was still a bit nervous about the shift. Jonesy was right, though. No one climbs stairs unless they have to. This is still America, after all. Laziness always wins.
Also, there was nothing in the cabin above the trees except me, a book, and a journal. Nothing worth making the journey. As the sun slid behind the horizon, I started my trek to the Sentinel. When I got to the platform at the bottom, something caught my eye. The tower base is lousy, with stickers, tags, and names carved into the pine. Usually it's Joe plus Jane forever, or something along those lines. But what had been freshly cut was a bit different. It was a pair of eyes. Had the earlier events not happened, I probably wouldn't have even noticed the eyes. I chalked it up to my mind, already being primed to see some spooky stuff. I assumed it had been some kids earlier or one of the older rangers looking to give me a scare. Whatever it was, I did a quick glance around me before I started up the stairs. From the vantage point high above the trees, you can see storms come rolling in. Tonight was no exception. It was a waning crescent moon tonight, so it would be a bit dark, but those rain clouds made it pitch black. The only natural light that I would see would be the occasional burst of lightning inside the clouds. The wind had picked up too. You could tell because there is a slight shift in the tower wind the wind gust. Not a lot, but just enough to notice. You get used to it, but when it first hits, it can be a bit jarring. There were a few wind gusts, but I settled in for the evening and I stopped noticing. About an hour later, my walkie crackled to life. How's the view? It was Jonesy. Great, I said. We're about to do a pass around the park. Wanted to give you a heads up. I leaned forward in my chair and glanced through the window towards the base. I saw Jonesy and a few other rangers getting into their gator carts to head out. Their headlights were bright, but only because there was literally no other light down there. The beams themselves only saw a few feet in front of you. Hey, thanks. You guys need me to scout anything for you. No, we'll be fine, but hey, if you see any wendigos, let me know, okay? Funny, I said. If you hear any thrushes singing, run. Those boys should all be in bed by now. I'll keep that in mind. Be back in a half hour, 40 minutes tops. Over and out. I sat and I placed on my walkie and watched those tiny ants drive off into the woods and out of sight. I kicked back in my chair and started reading again. And that's when I heard a board creak. At first, my mind assumed it was probably just the wind pushing the tower. It can cause a creaking sound in the tower. But my brain pushed away the fog of rationality, and a more terrible thought became clear. What if someone was outside the door... I would have heard them walking up the stairs, right? I looked around for anything I could use as a weapon. Outside of smashing my walkie or flashlight into this potential person's head, there wasn't much. If I did need to escape, light and communication would probably be a good thing to have. I didn't want to go and break essential equipment. I grabbed my walkie and pressed the button. Jonesy, I said, trying to sound confident. Jonesy, you out there? I knew there was a chance that he might be out of range. Sometimes these walkies can be wonky in the forest, and I was praying that he would respond. But the longer I heard the static, the less hope I had he could hear me. 
Jonesy, just curious if you guys had circled back this way. Finally. Yeah, Ned forgot his lights and we came back. But we're heading out now. Okay, I said. Hey, odd question. But did anyone come up to the Sentinel by chance? Just you. He said and then added. Why? Thought I... Thought I heard a board creak. It's breezy tonight. A storm coming in. Probably just the wind. Or the Wendigo. He said, chuckling to himself. Have fun. I said, ending the conversation. I put my walkie back down and stared at the door that led to the stairs. The odds that someone would have walked up here to put a scare in me was remote. Like Jonesy said earlier, no one walks ten stories unless they have to. But what if the woman from earlier had seen someone, or a group, and they were looking for a place to hide out? Would the Sentinel be a good choice? Maybe. I don't know how the criminal mind works. Regardless, for my own sanity, I would have to swing that door open and see if anyone was there. It was probably nothing, but I needed to be sure. If not, the rest of my shift was going to be miserable. I quietly walked across the cabin to the door and grabbed the handle. I counted out from three in my head and I swung the door open. There was nothing there. In the distance, a flash of lightning crashed and thunder rolled. But no person was standing there. I sighed and then stepped out onto the landing. You could really feel the breeze up here now. That storm was moving in quickly. You could smell the rain coming. The earthy scent that the raindrops stir up was all around me. Even though I was sure no one was outside the cabin, I wanted to check out the stairs just in case. I walked over to the stairs and stared down. In the darkness, the stories below me just merged with the night. I couldn't see anything. I pulled on my flashlights and shone the beam down the stairs to the next landing. The flashlights we had were decent but not ideal. Cops got 1,000 lumen flashlights to shine in your eyes when they pull you over, and we were lucky to get half that. It's not like we would need adequate lights working in the pitch black or anything. I walked down to the first landing and glanced around. Nothing seemed out of place. I flashed my light down to the next landing, and something caught my eye. The light reflected off of something on the stairs. Not unlike a toddler, I made my way to the shiny object. I was a little surprised to find a small piece of reflective strip on the stairs. I didn't remember seeing it on the way up. I would have picked it up to throw it away. It looked like it had been ripped off a jacket or uniform or something. But how did it get here? The wind might have blown this up from a campsite, but that felt wrong. It was. I turned to climb back up to the cabin when I froze. On the railing, something had carved another set of eyes. I didn't move. I stood there as my brain tried to piece together an excuse that made sense, but it was failing. Even when I started to feel the patter of rain on my face, I didn't move. What the heck was going on? Fearing that someone might be looking at me, I clicked off my flashlight. I know I said earlier that I didn't want to waste essential tools, but at this point, I was ready to brain someone until the thing broke. The rain started to come down a bit harder, which helped to break me from my fugue state. 
I was about to start back up towards the cabin when I heard the floorboards above me squeak. There was a crash of thunder nearby, and it barely registered in my mind. I was so tuned into the symphony of pine stairs that a bomb could have blown off near me and I would miss it. After what felt like 17 hours, I hadn't heard anything else, and I relaxed a little bit. It was probably nothing. My mind was overactive, and I was read stringing together disparate events into a cohesive narrative to scare myself. I was sure that was it. And then I heard something drag across the pine above me. It sounded like someone was gouging at the wood. I didn't know what to do. My legs felt like jello. I wanted to go streaming down the stairs, but I was afraid I would make too much noise. Plus, the idea of running down eight stories of now wet steps didn't sound ideal. I slowly started making my way towards these stairs heading down, when the gouging noises above me stopped. After a slight pause, I heard footsteps head towards the door of the cabin. Someone was up there, I was sure of it. What they wanted to do well, I didn't want to think about it. I slowly started down the stairs, careful to not let any of them squeak underneath me. I kept my flashlight off and just descended into the darkness. I reached for where my walkie should be and cursed to myself when I realized that I had left it up there. As if on cue, I heard the cabin door swing back open and heard an object crashing through the trees towards the ground. As it passed me, I heard the familiar static of the walkie. Whatever was in the cabin had just tossed my only lifeline to the outside world. Well, crap, that wasn't good. I hastened my trip down the stairs. As I rounded the landing for the sixth story, I suddenly heard the familiar call of a wood thrush three landings below me. Only, the thrushes were gone at this time of night. This, this was a person... He made the noise again, and it clicked as to why they would give their position up. He was signaling to the person above me. He was letting him know where I was. One above, one below. I was trapped. Above me, I heard someone start down the steps. They moved slow and steady, deliberate. Whoever was up there was coming down to me, and I had nowhere to go. I thought about jumping down and trying to grab a branch on the way, but knew that would end poorly for me in the best of scenarios and deadly in the worst. They rounded the second story down. I was running out of time for a plan. I could run down the stairs and try to bull rush whoever was down there, but the rain was coming down hard now, and we could slip and fall off the tower. The only thing I had going for me was the darkness. I had the only light and outside of the occasional lightning flash, it was dark as hell. It would cloak me if I could find a good spot. As he rounded the landing above me, I made a decision that, looking back, was one of the wildest things I've ever done in my life. I wake up some nights gasping for breath because I dreamed about doing this. The instinct to survive is so deeply ingrained in our animal brain that I suppressed all the fear I would usually have and just acted. As quietly as I could, I climbed over the handrail on the landing and hung off the side of the stairs. 
My feet felt for the handrail on the landing below me to help steady me, but my toes just grazed against the wood. I couldn't reach them. My arms started burning as they held my weight. I clawed into the wood with my hands, hoping my nails digging into the pine would counteract my wet palms. I closed my eyes partially to shut out the pain in my arms and partly because I was afraid the whites of my eyes would get noticed. I heard the footsteps turn the corner and start to come down the stairs right next to me. I held my breath. My arms were burning and I was so afraid I would lose my grip. The person took the steps one at a time, slow as possible. They were looking for me on the landing but didn't see me. Suddenly, whatever it was started chittering into the darkness. A few seconds later, the wood thrush called back. The footsteps stopped coming down the stairs and started going back up. No, no. In a flash, a solution came to me. I used my right foot to kick off my left boot. Suddenly, I was glad I didn't take Jonesy's advice to keep the laces as tight as a drum. I kicked my boot onto the landing below me, and they landed with a heavy crash. The footsteps stopped going up the stairs. I freed my other boot, and it crashed down next to their partner on the landing. It sounded like I was down there. The footsteps walked right past me, heading down quickly to surprise me on the landing below. As soon as they rounded the corner, I called upon all the strength of my body and quickly pulled myself back up over the railing. I landed with a thud, which gave away the ghost. I popped up and dashed up the stairs to the top of the cabin. I knew they would be right behind me, so I didn't hesitate. In seconds, I was at the top of the stairs and outside the cabin door. I was met with another pair of eyes carved into the wood. They stared back at me, watching and waiting to see what I was going to do next. I dashed into the cabin and leaned against the door to brace against anyone trying to burst in. I knew two people, at least I hoped they were people, were coming, and they were not going to stop until they got into the cabin. Another bolt of lightning flashed nearby and the ensuing thunder shook the tower. Things were close. I glanced up and noticed that someone had carved another set of eyes staring at me just above the window. Only this time, they left a message with the picture. You watch us, but who's watching you? I could feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I swallowed hard as I heard two sets of footprints reach at the top of the landing. Sure enough, they charged into the door, pushing it open slightly. I braced hard against the door and started yelling. Just the most primal screaming I've ever done. They kept thumping the door. Each thrust pushed the door open a bit more and a bit more. I was struggling to hold out against them. I was tired and my socks were slipping on the wood. It was only a matter of time until they burst through. I thought about my life. I thought about my parents, my friends. All the things I'd never get to do. And then the hair in my arms started to stand on end. And then my leg hair. And then my hair started to rise. Only, it wasn't fear that was causing this. It was something much more primal, much more natural, much more powerful. I dashed across the room and sat on the insulated stool, a beat-up wooden seat with glass legs and held at my feet. 
As the door burst open, I saw two sets of eyes staring at me. The two faces grinned, and the cabin light reflected off the blade of a knife. I screamed as everything went white, and what sounded like the sky splitting in two erupted around us. Lightning had struck the tower. I was safe. Glass and wood are bad conductors, but the two men who were standing in a puddle weren't as lucky. The blast had shocked them and sent them tumbling down the side of the tower. When I opened my eyes, I could see the burn marks across the pine and smell the fire that had been started. Without giving anything a second thought, I dashed out of the door, careful not to catch myself on fire, and ran down the stairs of the Sentinel. It may take ten minutes to climb up, but it took me only about two minutes to get down. As soon as I hit the bottom landing, I saw the lights of the gator carts pull up. I collapsed on the ground as Jonesy and the other rangers rushed over to me. I glanced up and saw his face and I started to sob. Above him, the flames licked and ate away the tower floor by floor. It would burn for over an hour. I later learned that the two men killed by the lightning were escaped convicts from the jail. Both of them had beat up a guard, grabbed their clothes, and headed out into the woods three days earlier. The escape had been kept quiet because they didn't want to spook anyone and thought that they would track them down in the woods sooner rather than later. Why scare people if you didn't have to? And also forget that noise. They both had been convicted of murder and I swear to God, this is what the police told me. The criminals had ill intent for me. I told the officers I had gathered that. Thinking back, they probably watched me climb up the tower later and saw an easy target. When I had first heard the floorboard squeak outside the door, the criminal that had followed me up made a quick decision to climb up onto the roof of the cabin to prevent me from seeing him until he was ready. I probably didn't hear anything on the roof because of the fan and the rain. I think about what he could have done to me had he caught me by surprise, jumping down from the roof and shudder. At best, I would be stabbed by a madman. At worst, I would tumble ten stories to my death. Either way, not a great thing to linger on during idle hours. That was my last day as a ranger. I was due back to school in a few weeks, and I needed time to calm my nerves. Everyone understood. They even paid me out for the week, which was nice. I also took a small part of the Sentinel as a memento of the ordeal. Every time I look at the piece of wood I took from the tower, I wasn't reminded of what could have happened to me, but instead, of what I did to survive. Someone was watching me that night, but it wasn't just the criminals. It was nature herself. I started working the night shift for my local airport. I found a strange list of rules. Written by Taco Kermit Okay, so let me explain. I am 27 years old and on June 25th, I'm supposed to marry my lovely fiancé. We're both partygoers and both want a big, nice wedding. The only problem is we both work full-time jobs and needed some extra money. So I was browsing job websites over and over searching for a good part-time job. That's when I hit the jackpot. A nighttime security position for my local airport. 
It was so perfect, so easy, so convenient. The next night, I drove straight to the airport for the interview. Okay, so now that you have the backstory, let's get to the actual stuff. As I showed up to the airport, I drove into the back lot. It was a small little spot that was in the back. I opened the door and I walked through. Inside the building, it was warm. I walked down the hallway that led into the main building. The airport was rather large with small shops and restaurants surrounding this area. Mine took notes of my surrounding area and noticed a double door in the back wall labeled employees only. I walked through there and saw a woman sitting at the table facing me. Sitting next to her were two men in suits. She got up and smiled before walking over to me. She shook my hand and greeted me. We talked and she asked me about my skills and hobbies before she eventually hired me. And then came the shocking news that I would start tonight. I was surprised and a little angry on such short notice, but I reminded myself that this was for my fiancé. So I told them fine and I was happy to start working tonight. She told me that she was glad and wanted to give me a tour of the airport. She led me through the winding open area, from the luggage drop-off and around to the security scanner thing. Past that was the long open area where you would find your waiting area. After the full tour, I won't bore you with everything, but I was led into a room near the security scanning area. This was the security guard room where I would be working most of the time. She handed me a security manual guide and wished me good luck. Good luck? Who wishes someone good luck? I thought it was pretty weird when I sat down in my office chair and scrolled on my phone. I glanced at the clock and noticed that it read 11.43. My shift started at 11.30 each night, so I already had to start working. I grabbed the employee manual making sure that I didn't miss anything. As I flipped through the pages about criminal attacks and illegal travelers, I got to a page about rules. I glanced at the page and this is what it said. Greetings, new arrival. I hope you have settled in now because it's time to begin working. Each night, you may have to deal with these minor inconveniences on your normal job. Here are the instructions to follow. 1. At exactly midnight, you will hear automatic voice come over the speakers saying that Flight 606 has landed. Now, pay attention to your security cameras. If you see nobody waiting in Area D, then you are fine. If there are people in this area, you must immediately get up and go to Area D. Use the handgun in the drawer and shoot all the people in that area. Do not worry, they are not real people. 2. Make sure you are to perform daily round checks throughout the airport. Sometimes, you will hear sounds playing through the speaker. Pay attention. If it's music, you are fine and clear to complete the check. If it's static, immediately book it back to your security room and lock all the doors. 3. You may encounter a friendly man listening to music near the restroom. Be polite and answer all of his questions. If he asks you to listen with him, politely decline. He may get persistent and if that happens, back away from him and ignore anything that he says. 4. While sitting in your room, you may notice that it sounds like people are knocking on your door. Make sure that it's locked and continue on with your business. 5. 
If at any time on your patrol you hear a loud plane taking off, hide in the nearest shop or restaurant. Close your eyes and do not alert the creature that will walk down the hall. 6. While sitting in your office, you may receive a phone call at around 2.30 a.m. Do not answer it, no matter who it is. 7. You may see a close friend or a relative walking around the airport. They may call your name or try to get your attention. Don't look at them or talk to them. 8. While patrolling the airport, you may stumble across shops that seem off or have strange names. If you feel this way, you must not go into that shop. Do not pay any attention to it. If you fail to do this, they will never let you out. 9. At around 4am, you will hear a woman whistling. She will be standing by the security station. Try to back away slowly and not get caught by her. If she notices you, act calm. Walk through our scanners and pray you don't have anything that gets detected. Leave your handgun in the office from 3.30 to 4.15. 10. At 5.15, head to the baggage claim where you will end your shift. Take the escalators down to the lower level. If the escalator stops, close your eyes and do not open them until the elevator starts moving again. 11. Now, here's the risky part. You must take a transport train to the baggage claim area. Wait for train A. If you see any other train, do not board. You may see passengers get off the train but pay no attention. They can't hurt you. 12. Once on the train, wait for the doors to close and then sit down and relax. Wait for the train to start moving. If the lights go out at any point, hide under the seats and wait for the lights to come back on. At station E, you will exit the train and head to the baggage claim area. 13. Once at the baggage claim area, you will finish up your shift by starting all baggage conveyors. If you see any bags that have blood splattered over them, do not panic. Grab the bag and take it off the cart. Use the hand rag provided by our custodial staff. Wipe down the suitcase and put it back on the belt. 14. Do not speak to any employees down there. You may see a man or a woman wheeling a cart. They may ask you for help but decline and walk away. If they follow you, take the handgun and do what you have to do. If they still follow you, then crawl under the conveyor and whiz around until they are gone. We know this may sound silly, but for the sake of your life, silly might be your only chance to survive. At 6.30 in the morning, the day guard will appear. Let him take your shift and you are free to go. Thank you for helping out your local airport. Redacted Airport Management. What a joke, I thought. I glanced at the clock and noticed the time read 11.59. I got up to do my first round check when all of a sudden, an automated voice blasted on the speakers. Flight 606 has landed. Area D. I glanced at the cameras. People had gotten off the plane. They all looked normal except for one thing. They had no face. I almost puked before I got up and I grabbed the gun. I looked at the rules and realized what I had to do. I opened my door and ran down the hallway, ready to take care of these people. I got to Area D and I aimed the pistol. I did what the rules told me to do. Unwillingly though. 
I dropped the gun out of shock and stumbled back. What had I done? I walked back to the office in a trance, when all of a sudden, loud static came through the tiny speakers. I froze for a second, but then took off running. I heard a loud crash behind me. I froze and turned around. And that's when I saw this 12-foot-tall beast. It looked like a dog mixed with a bear and maybe some other alien breed in there. It dashed towards me and that's when I snapped back to my senses. I ran full speed to my office and grabbed the door. I opened it up when I was lifted off my feet. I crashed on the ground and saw the beast barreling towards the door. My light attendant moved the large shelf to create a barricade. Now it's 12.37 and I'm typing this up with the creature outside. I can't do this anymore. I can't. I tried calling my wife, but no answer. Police, no answer. I don't know what to do. I sat in my office, trying to type the last post when I realized that the banging had stopped. I got up and sat down on my chair. I decided I would suck it up. I would survive. I knew what I had to do. So I checked the cameras and glanced at the clock. I realized it was 1.13, so I had to take my round check. I don't know if I told you guys this, but the book said it should do a round check about every half an hour. I didn't want to miss the 1 o'clock one, so I got up. I walked down the hall and checked all the little shops. What was this place? There was a burger joint, an ice cream parlor, and a plastic surgeon. Wait... I backtracked to the plastic surgeon and saw a guy in a doctor's outfit working on some red-dressed woman. He looked up and gave me a wave. I looked up at the sign and saw the place was called Cosmic Change. Now I know people that know Caps was on purpose. I was confused when I found him walking towards me. And that's when I remembered the rule list. This place was definitely not normal. I started to back away as the surgeon came closer. Come on in. He said this in a spring tone. It was like hearing the voice of a cartoon character. The voice was rich and soothing. It sounded like he could just make this hell disappear. He took one more step when I realized what was happening, and I took off running back to my office. I could hear the woman's screams echo throughout the airport. I sat down in my office, trying to figure out a plan. Could I really survive and then leave forever? Will they ever let me out? These questions echoed in my mind, bouncing around. I was looking through the cameras when a knock on the door came. I nearly jumped out of my skin. Hello? This is the county police. I believe you made a call. I froze. Could it really be the police? Will they set me free? I stopped. No, it was fake. It was a trap. I sat back down and ignored it. I pulled up my phone and checked the time. 2.29. I let out a long sigh when I heard a loud buzz. I whipped out my phone and it was a call from my wife. Yes, yes, yes. She must have heard my call and... Wait. I glanced at the caller ID again. Now a red mom. Why would my mom be calling me? I decided to ignore it before referring to the rules. Right, don't answer the call at 2.30. I put my head on my desk and slowly began to cry. Why? It wasn't fair. But I knew that I couldn't stop now.
so I sat up and grabbed my flashlight and went out to do my shift. I stormed out of the door, whirling my handgun. I was going to survive. I checked every shop and restroom, heard nothing, saw nothing. I was walking back to my office when I heard music. I at first thought that it was coming from the speakers, but soon noticed it was quieter. I turned around and there he was. A tall man who had Elvis hairstyle and a Hawaiian shirt. I held my breath and began walking away. He turned around and smiled. Hey, what's up? I continued walking. Hey, what do you think of this song? He asked in a polite way. I said no thank you and he gave me a weird look. Buddy, I'm just asking you to listen. I said no thank you again and continued walking. You listen to me. I stopped dead in my tracks. Listen to me. My blood froze and my heart stopped. I heard loud running footsteps behind me and I turned around and bang. The man fell to the ground. His colored shirt now sprouting a red blossom. He stared at me and held out his earbud. A smile started to trace his lips. Listen. And with that he screamed before his head exploded with blood. Another hole had pierced his head. I silently put the gun in the holster. And I walked back to my office when something got up. Little footsteps approaching me. I took off running back to the office and I ducked through the door. Closed and locked it. I peered through the window to see the man. Only now, he was disfigured. His face had been shattered like glass. Red covered his once colorful shirt. He rammed on the door with his new claws. I grabbed my gun and I put one through the office door as well, and the banging stopped. It was over. I sighed in relief. I removed the crumbled rulers from my pocket and checked the time. 3.34. How? I decided not to question it and I moved on to my shaft. Walking around, I noticed it was unusually quiet. I took a right near the entrance and then heard the unmistakable sound of a plane landing, and it was loud, ear-shattering loud. I remembered suddenly and ran into the nearest shop, a burger joint. I ducked behind the counter and closed my eyes. I even held my breath. Loud footsteps echoed throughout the empty abyss. I prayed to every god out there. And then I felt a tap. It was light but unmistakable. Another one on my shoulder. Heavy breathing was in my ear. But I wouldn't open my eyes. And then it went away. And just like that, I got up and continued walking. I hate this so much. But I must prevail for my fiancé. And that's when I heard a beep behind me. I was confused at first. I started turning around and saw the security sign. Oh heck no. Excuse me sir, can you step through the security scanner? I didn't know what to do. There was no whistling, there was nothing but silence. I fumbled for my gun and thought about chucking it into the nearest store. Sir, I need to scan you. I walked over to her and took off my jacket. I slid the gun under the table and put my jacket in the bin. It slid right along to the x-ray. She locked her eyes on the computer and started clicking away at the keyboard. I held my breath and walked through the scanner. Then a beep. I froze. But she didn't look up, so I took that as a good thing. 
and that's when the beeping started again. She stared deadpan into the monitor, her eyes frozen in time. How, I thought. I faced the woman and watched as she became unnatural. Her face started to crack. Jagged edges appeared. Her limbs grew in size. I took off running and I knew I couldn't make it back to the office. So, that's when I made a cut to the nearest store. I hid in there and prayed. I'm here now, still praying. If you read this, send help. I was hiding, crouched down under some toy shop. Stuffed bears and animals everywhere. That lady had been searching for 20 minutes and I didn't know what to do. I could make a break back for the office, I have the gun. And that's when I realized the dolls on one corner. They were no ordinary dolls, but instead, horrifying. There was one, its mouth gaping open with black paint leaking out of its eyes. No. I whirled back to the entry of the shop to see the security guard smiling. Before fading away, this was a trap. They had lured me right here and now I was going to die. All alone. What would they tell my future wife? The dolls moved closer. Their wooden heads jerked in my direction. One step, then another. I scooted backwards and got up on my feet. One. I backed away further and took a step to my right. Two. I bumped into a large clown toy that stared at me with glowing eyes. The hand reached out as I was caught in a trance. Three. I shot straight out of the toy store, not taking a look back. I heard loud footsteps behind me, but I kept running. All the adrenaline carried my withered body through the endless hallways. I made another turn before coming up on the office. A doll clamored on my shoulder, dragging me down. It opened its mouth to take a bite out of me, but I grabbed the handgun and smacked it in the head. It fell off and tumbled to the ground. I opened the office door and I dove inside. The clown doll was about to ram me, eyes locked on the target. I kicked the door with the last of my strength and the clown stuck right in between. It started to move its way through the crack when its porcelain head shattered. I lifted my foot up and I stomped on it again, until it was nothing but a few cracked pieces and one glowing eye. Deep breaths. That was all I could tell myself. I sit in the chair once again and flip open the computer cameras. The body of the clown doll is still laying on the floor. The rest of the dolls now crowd around it. I should have looked what store I dove into. Once again, I barely had managed to get out with my life. I'm getting really lucky here. Another mistake like that and I'm pretty much finished. But I have to follow the rules and survive. I don't want to break into the rule, but I also don't want to run through the crowd of dolls and creatures that roam the hallways. I glanced at the time. It was now 4.16. Once again, it feels off, but the rules never said anything about that. And that's when an idea popped into my head. What if I broke through early and got down to the transport train? If I could get myself set up in the new booth area, then I would be ready for the next encounters. After a few minutes of thinking it over, I decided that I would go for it. I didn't have anything left. I loaded the last mag of the handgun. I opened the door and saw nothing. No dolls, no demons, nothing. Just a dark, empty airport. I needed to follow the signs that led to the train. I took a deep breath and I stepped outside. 
I made sure that I had everything packed. I would need to get past some of the loading areas to the escalators. I clicked on the flashlight and followed its narrow beam. After a few minutes of walking, I noticed the whispers. It was faint, but there. I could only hear my name being whispered over and over again. I shuddered at the thought of millions of creatures surrounding me and taunting me. I walked past one of the areas and noticed shadowy people sitting and staring. I shined my light at the figures and saw no face, just white, blank eyes. I quickly looked away as I didn't want to disturb something I wasn't supposed to. I walked past some of these shadowy people in the hallway. I try not to look or shine my light on any of them. Every once in a while, I would feel a cold tap on my shoulder. When I turned to look, I would see a shadow creature next to me. I kept walking through the endless abyss. When I found the escalator going down, I hopped on it. I had almost reached the bottom when it halted to a stop. and The lights began to flicker and I squeezed my eyes shut. I even stopped my breathing and didn't notice it until I almost had passed out. Something blew past my face and seemed to reach out to me. It was that feeling you get when someone holds a finger right up to your face and you can sense it, even though you may not be looking. When it finally went away, I let out a huge sigh of relief and walked the rest of the way down. I followed the hallway as it led me around the maze. When I got to the tracks, I noticed a transport vehicle already pulling out. This one was broken with cracks and blood pouring out of the doors. Disfigured people stared at me and banged on the glass. I looked away and shuddered at the thought of being stuck with them. It seemed as I had arrived early, I could wait a few minutes before my train would arrive. I looked through the list of rules to make sure that I didn't miss anything, but I couldn't find anything I did wrong. I was still alive, so I took that as a plus. When I heard a train pull up, I quickly folded the list of rules and put it back into my pocket. When the train arrived, I made sure that it was the right one. I waited for the doors to open when something unexpected happened. The door slid open and people walked out. Not just shadow people, but actual real people. I at first was confused. You see, a lot of people have asked why there aren't any people at the airport during my shift. The reason for that is actually because this airport closes at night. Due to an incident a few years ago, where a man had killed a young woman during the night. That's the reason why it's closed for now, and they were searching for a new guard. So, I was surprised when real people came out. The last person was my... fiancé... She wore her favorite dress. She exited the tram and moved toward me. I was taken aback by the glow that she had surrounding her. It was beautiful. I moved in closer before I realized that she was smiling. Her eyes were red and her smile was forest. She strode toward me with her hands outstretched. She looked like a cobra ready to strike. I backed away from her horrifying smile and then her face started cracking like the security guard. I backed away, slowly reaching for the gun. I gripped it in my hand, aiming it at my love. I squeezed my eyes shut before pulling the trigger. Her body flew down to the ground with a wound in her chest. Red poured out and she smiled at me before her eyes went white. 
I clutched her body in my arms and carried it towards the tram. I looked at her one last time with a tear dripping down my cheek. I laid her body on the floor of the train. Then the door shut and we took off, leaving this place forever. Rules to Survive the Monsters in the Dark Written by Temporary Oxygen Mantry 1 If this ever gets anywhere, I suppose that's good. This can sort of pinpoint for a survival guide to escaping monsters. I guess. Take it as you will. Hate me or love me. This might actually come in handy once. Now I know what you're thinking. Who the heck has the kind of time to stop and write down rules? Me. I do. Before you start going on a tangent about how I could die doing or get distracted, distractions are nice. They keep me busy from thinking about the monsters. And monsters is a really nice word for whatever the heck those things are outside. They are dark and lengthy in all the ways possible. Their long legs, even their torso is long. Their eyes are dark, gaping holes, which, if you stare at long enough, you'd get deeply lost. I have a theory that if you stare long enough, you would turn into one. But I digress. Sometimes in life, rules can come in handy, and being a high school rule breaker, it's really saying a lot. Speaking of, that was the first place everyone went to hide. What kind of cliché say, school is safe, it isn't. Rule 1 and number 2 taught me that, but I'm not mentally available to tell you about both of those rules. Every aspect of life, everything you think you know, everything you think you believe, might just come crashing down. That's what happens when you box everything in. We do that a lot. We give things a label so we can box it. And then we stack those boxes up and when something even remotely questioning happens, those boxes come crashing down. Here's a little story. Just trust me, it'll come in handy for later. When I was in high school, there were these two girls. One was named Vanessa and the other was named Vivian. Vivian was the nicest girl that you would ever meet. And then there was Vanessa, the entire other end of the spectrum. Don't get me wrong, I was in sunshine and rainbows in high school, but Vanessa liked to spit on people. So one day, Vivian was walking home, and Vanessa was following her. She asked her to come over to her house and for reasons that no one really knows. She was excited that someone finally wanted to be her friend, so she said yes. Vanessa was nice to her until she wasn't. Rumors flooded around that she liked girls. She outed her when she wasn't even into girls. Vivian ended up moving towns. Serves her right. That was about nine months before the monster showed up. But I didn't tell you that story so you could see a form of justice. I told it because I wanted you to know my reasoning for why I called one breed Vanessa's. There are many different breeds. Vanessa's are the scariest, and the biggest one, which there is only one. I call that the mom. 
Uh, not because I don't love my mom, but because I studied its behavior. And all the Vanessas that listen to her. So, she is uh, the mother. The mom was the scariest of them all. Not even the Dillas were as scary. There were five others than the mom. Vanessa and Dilla. Kilken, Randall, Scolo, Gina, and Shock. These are the names that I've given them. No real thoughts other than these people terrorized my life, and something else has taken their place. It's really only fair that I give them some recognition. I have ten full rules, not including rule number one and number two. I will cover them all in great time. For now, I must tell you about my special rule. Rule number three. When the moon turns red, hide. I don't know if the world we live in is a simulation of some kind or if I'm crazy. But when the moon turns red, for me at least, I hide. At first, I thought a red moon was really cool. But not when the mom screeching can be heard deep in the valley. Bouncing off the doom that we are trapped in, there is nothing cool about it. It was a complete accident that I figured this out. I was looting a med store for supplies, obviously, when I felt tired for no reason. Well, honestly, there was a plenty of reasons, from the things that I had witnessed prior in the day, and outrunning those ugly Vanessas. Either way, I wanted to lay down. My legs ached and my lungs were on their last stretch. I was tired and the bags under my eyes could carry the groceries. The air, despite the horrors of the day, was crisp and clean, and breathing it in made me feel that much more normal. But then that was all washed away when I looked down at my beige and blue striped shirt, and the memory came flooding back as I stared at the bloodstain. I wanted to take it off of me, throw it in a fire, erase the old me that loved wearing this shirt. Only I couldn't. I didn't have another one, and it was cold. I needed all the clothes that I could get. Sadly, my zip-up hoodie wasn't really fixing that issue, but it wasn't stained with blood. So I angrily zipped up my hoodie hiding the stain underneath, like a dirty secret. But my finger got caught in the zipper. Crap. Can you be quiet? I heard a voice say. I nearly died from a heart attack and this person was telling me to be quiet. Shut up or get out. I don't care which one. Yelling attracts those things. Sorry, I mumbled. I grabbed for the extra bandages on the shelf before I felt something behind hit. I turned around, throwing the bandages at the girl standing in front of me. Crap. Sorry, she mumbled. I wanted to see what you look like. And... I don't know, but thanks for the bandages, she smiled, grabbing for the boxes on the floor. Hey, uh, uh, no, give those back, I called after her. She turned around, sticking her tongue out at me. I never got your name. She opened the door, turning to face me. Why you stopped? Aren't you coming with me? Um, I, uh, I was staring at this girl. She had to have been no older than myself. Same height. I was only about an inch taller. She wasn't bad looking and it hit me. We might have been the only two left in this godforsaken town. And she was gorgeous. Are you okay? 
Did one of those things bite you? She asked, making a face. I shook my head no. It's a bit cold, isn't it? I nodded, walking towards her. Name? I asked again. Olivia. She wound up. Yours? Okay, don't laugh. Stop, why are you laughing? I haven't even told you yet. Because you told me not to. Uh, fine. My name is Blair, I said, and she laughed. I told you not to. I thought you were going to have some janky name like Ted or something. She slapped at her knee. Her laughter made me smile because it wasn't screeching. I'm a girl. Why would my name be Ted? She stopped laughing for a second. What? Do you hear that? No, I don't hear anything. That's the problem, she started. She turned her back to the store. No noises, no sound, no nothing. Blair, the last time that it was this quiet was right before those things showed up, I finished. She turned back to face me. Where did they go? No clue and I don't want to know, she said. Her voice was low. She was right. There were no noises, no sounds. Only the sound of our feet meeting the concrete. Let's go back. It might be safer. Nothing is safer anymore. She stared off in front of us. But you might be right. And it's better to be with someone than to be alone. You just don't want to die alone. I corrected. Yeah, dying alone would suck. She walked ahead of me. Her shirt was clean, but she was cold. Stop, I called. She turned and looked at me, confused. Here, I said taking my jacket. You're colder than me. Hey, thanks, she said putting it on. I'll admit that I was cold, but she only had a crop top on. Fair is fair. It was darker when we got back to the med store. I had a couple packs of glow sticks, and I gave half of everything I had to Olivia. After we did a full inventory. Yes, I refused her stuff. She probably would just use it for herself or put it in a bag when I was sleeping. She thanked me once I had handed her the last of the stuff that I was giving her. She was tired and I could tell. Even under the little glow of the green and pink glow sticks, I could see the bags under her eyes. Stop staring, she whispered. I know I look like a rack. No, no you don't. You just look a little tired is all. I said. You don't, by the way. She looked at me confused. I look like a rack, you don't. Gee, thanks. Shivery isn't dead after all, she joked. And I laughed. And then we met beds and laid in them. Hers was a hammock hanging from one shelf right next to the other. I, on the other hand, was fine with the floor. My whole life, I've been good at tracking movement. I always listened for my mother's footsteps at night, when she was coming to check on me. I was good at feeling the vibrations. So, if a Vanessa or the million other names I could care less to name right now were coming, I would feel and hear it. I felt like I needed to stay up. That if I fell asleep, I would wake up and it would be a dream. While part of me would be relieved that it was a dream... I knew that Olivia wouldn't be there. Man, the bitter truth really hit me when I was being shaken awake by someone. I pushed them off and heard a crash. Whoops, I had pushed Olivia into a shelf. 
Jesus, uh, my bad. It's okay. She got up, rubbing at her head. I'm okay. But I heard something. That's why I woke you up. Was it a mom? A what? A mom, you know. That really big one that screeches and then those other ones that follow. I call her the mom, I explained. Don't look at me like that. I heard someone. She moved closer to me. Or something. This something sent chills down my spine. We were no longer in our little world. There were things and it's now. What did it sound like? I don't know, she said in a whisper. But it scared me. Fine, fine, I'll go look, I said getting up. Her hand wrapped around my wrist and then she let go. If I don't come back, take the stuff and run. No, don't die. I don't know what I'll do. I can't do this alone. Then come with me, I whispered. At least we'd go out together, I joked. She giggled a little before standing up beside me. She followed me to the door, and then like I figured, I would have to go into that little back room by myself. Not that I wasn't absolutely thrilled to go inside of that dark, pitch-black abyss, never-ending blackness of a room or anything. I just figured maybe it would be nice to have some company. I was wrong. I pushed it open, slightly hoping to alert whatever was in there that I was coming. In hindsight, it wasn't my brightest idea, I know that. But monsters are afraid of what they don't know. Just like we are. I and my math teacher once told me that spiders were really more afraid of us than we were of them. The same with snakes and everything in between. And maybe that's true. But maybe, just maybe those same rules applied here. Those monsters had to be just as afraid of us as we were of them. I didn't see anything in the room clearly. Though, I heard shuffling noises and that was enough for me to believe Olivia's beliefs. And then, they were fully confirmed when I felt a warmness in my leg. And then pain. Something stabbed me. And then everything went red from there. Or maybe everything was already red. The room was so dark that I couldn't have known that it was red, but it was. All the same, the red moon brings out the horrible side of life. No, not like in that one show where they begin murdering each other. I mean all the monsters are out. Screeching, hunting. It wasn't a monster that stabbed me though. It was a child. Because Olivia caught whoever it was because she thought it was me. I came out of the room. Olivia was holding the child. And then her eyes shot up to mine. And then to my leg. Blair. I'm fine. I sat down next to them with a grunt. I reached for my pack when realizing the girl has a slash on her arm and her clothes were stained red with blood. I reached to touch her arm, but she flinched and pulled away from me. Hey, hey, it's alright. I'm promised that I'm not mad about my leg. To be fair, it doesn't hurt that bad. She did move in Olivia's arms. Hey, let me help. I won't hurt you. You want me to do it? Olivia asked. The girl nodded. I handed her the pack. Alright, what's your name? Uh, Lydia. That's a pretty name, Olivia mumbled, grabbing the disinfectant. My name is Olivia, and this is Blair. She saved me. I did. From the shadows, she asked. 
Her eyes fell upon mine for the first time. They were a pretty ocean blue. Olivia nodded. Yeah, and then she gave me some band-aids. She reached for the ace bandage right beside her. She wasn't going to hurt you, you know. She was just checking. We thought there was no one else here. There isn't, she mumbled. The shadows got them all. Daddy screamed. The room fell silent. He told me that everyone was going to be okay. But then the shadows took him and Mama, and then everything got dark. They'll be alright. I knew that I was lying. I knew that they ended up like everyone else. We'll try and find them. They're dead, aren't they? She asked. Mama said the same thing when our dog went missing. Tucker, he was real nice, but he got hit by a car. And when I asked my mom, she said that we would look for him. That he was alright. But he wasn't. He was dead. So they are too. Maybe. I whispered truthfully. Who knows? You've got us now. Thanks. Her head fell on Olivia's shoulder. But the monsters were still running around outside, screaming and screeching. They were hunting still. And we were sitting ducks. They could smell my blood. So... Rule number three, hide when everything turns red, when the moon shines with blood, because the monsters are hunting, and nowhere is safe. I'm a monster that found salvation, but everything has a price. Written by Mr. Mills, 45. This is part 8 of I'm a Monster Created by the Government. If you missed the previous parts, a playlist will be linked in the top of the description. Enjoy. Earth, August 14th, 2001. Thanks for the nuggets, Daddy. Nalita jumps with glee, reaching into the McDonald's bag to retrieve her food. I plant a kiss in her forehead smiling as she ravages her way through the small feast. Of course, princess. How did school go today? I quiz as she's midway through a french fry. Mrs. Smith said I'm the best drawer. I made a drawing of you, daddy. Nalita then turns to stand on the seat and reaches into the back seat of the car to retrieve her backpack, unzipping the largest part and pulling out a colorful sketch. It depicts me in the basement while working on an experiment. My lab coat and goggles on as I look over a collection of different chemicals and mixtures. I carefully grab the sketch from her and give myself a closer look. This is great. You really capture my image. I inform her lightly. Rubbing her head back and forth vigorously to mess her hair up. I wrote your name too, daddy. Look. She guides her index finger over to the top right corner of the paper, my name being drawn in bold blue letters. Jonathan, spelled exactly correctly. Well, this is definitely going up in the fridge. I cheer, giving Alita a light pat on the back as she goes back to her meal. Mama says that my drawings take up too much space, so she doesn't put them on the fridge. She announces with a hint of sorrow. Her eyes lower into the bottom of her car seat. 
My wide smile shifts to a moderate frown as I glance out the windshield of the car. Well, uh, what does she do with them at her house? I ask, fearing the admittedly inevitable answer. I don't know, but whenever I give her a drawing, I don't see them again. She shrugs, her grim expression now matching mine. Both of us don't say anything for several seconds. I could feel my blood boiling as I tightened my grip on the steering wheel, knowing what my ex-wife had been doing. It clicked perfectly in my head, and I hated that it did. Well, I'm supposed to take you to mom's house today, but before we go, how about a McFlurry for dessert? I propose, to which Nalita excitedly thrashes in her seat. Yes, yes, please. Can I get Oreo topping, daddy? Of course, princess. I reply, my smile not returning. Of course you can. The Annihilation Realm Present Day The orchestrator and I stand as still as ice as we both stare each other down. I can see his tail moving excitedly behind his figure, telling me this fight was nothing more than simple entertainment for him. But to me, it meant the fate of my friends. I go on the offensive and take the first strike, leaping over to the orchestrator and taking a slash at his chest with my right claw. He blocks this, making a fist with his webbed hand and quickly throwing an uppercut. I go off my feet and spend several moments in the air before falling back down. His attacks are surely powerful, stronger than most opponents I had faced over the decades, but I would not yield. He would have to kill me for that to happen. He dashes over for a follow-up, throwing himself at me. I quickly move to the right and get back up to my feet, grabbing him by his tail and swinging him over my head. He glides hard against the arena floor, provoking a gas from all the creatures in the stands. I lift him up to slam him again, but his tail extends and wraps itself around my arm. The orchestrator takes this opportunity to fling me forward chasing after me as I soar through the air toward the energy wall. I shift my weight, reaching out and digging my claws into the floor, stopping myself just inches from the wall, my hair from what might have been a guaranteed loss on my end. You're a worthy warrior, Braun, he says, his slimy tongue appearing from between his jaws. But I have never been defeated. You stand in the way of me saving my friends, I don't care how many battles you've conquered, this will be your first defeat. I snarl back, baring my teeth and showcasing my claws. I charge him, dashing over to the side and utilizing a similar strategy that I performed on Thaw. He predicts this, holding out an arm in order to clothesline me, but I avoid it, going underneath and then swiping at one of his scaled legs. He cries out, is now known thick yellow-gray blood dripping from the wound. But I don't give him time to recover. I go in for another attack, grabbing and lifting him over my head before proceeding to smash his body into the floor below. It cracks and buckles from the force of the impact, kicking up dust and rock as a result. The terrible scent of his breath finds its way to my nose as I lean down, stomping my foot onto his chest and then slashing him across the face, giving him a line of cuts that will surely scar him for plenty of time to come. No, he bellows, 
angry at what I had just done. He sticks his claw into my leg and proceeds to climb me like a makeshift tree. We stumble and I howl as he slides his claws in a vertical motion on my legs, making me retaliate by prying him off and throwing him well over 20 feet away. My dark blue blood flows its way down my leg. The wound would heal soon enough, but the pain was still ever so potent, stinging all the way up the length of my cut-up limb. The orchestrator immediately gets up and returns to my position. We roar like feral beasts as the both of us trade blows and slashes, cutting each other's bodies up with a multitude of gashes and lacerations. I make a fist and I hit him several times in the chest before gliding the side of my body with the front of his. He falls straight down with a loud thud, but his tail gets a grip on my lower leg, causing me to lose my balance and to fall forward onto him. As I do, he turns his claw into a fist and throws a powerful right hook at the side of my face, and then another before lunging upwards and using the momentum to pin me out of my back. I slash at both of his arms. He howls before burying a claw into my chest inches above my heart, following it up by delivering several earth-shattering blows to my face, punching me further and further into the floor of the arena. I seize a chunk of rock from the floor and I smash it against his head. The orchestrator is dazed, allowing me to headbutt and knock him several feet into the air. As gravity kicks in and he falls, I jump up and with one quick but precise swing of my claws, cut the end of his tail clean off. The pain clearly slows him down, and with me still bleeding mainly around my torso and leg, it stings and hurdles my ability to move nearly as efficiently, but I still force myself to keep going, to keep pressing on and to keep fighting. I go in for a blow, but the orchestrator blocks it, returning with multiple of his own, only one of them successfully hitting me in the chin. I keep my position, but still can't help but snarl from the sharp, painful sensation of it all. Our blood mixes together as we continue to claw and gorge each other. I nearly disembowel the orchestrator after taking a swing at his abdomen, but he moves out of the way just in time. I then reach my left arm out as if to go for his leg, but as he maneuvers to counter it, forcing me to utilize my right claw to grip him by the throat, my leg still shaking from the cut as I lifted him above eye level, glaring at him furiously. Enough. Yield now, I bark, applying more pressure to his throat, threatening to crush it right then and there. The orchestrator chokes and squirms as I deprive his oxygen. The crowd of entities in the stands are now completely quiet, the obvious tension higher than ever before. The orchestrator refuses to admit defeat, so I strengthen the force of my squeeze making his writhing for air increase even further as he swats and attempts to hit me out of desperation. But it was futile in his end. I do not want to kill you, but if I must, then I will. I say, bringing him closer and biting him in the shoulder and tearing a sizable amount of flesh away, to which he responds by only thrashing around more. Just before I witness him about to black out, I let go letting him drop to my feet as he inhales obnoxiously, reaching at the air above as if to physically grab some oxygen. 
Do you yield? I probe, slamming my foot onto his chest and baring my teeth yet again. And my friends are close to a grave fate every second you hold me here in this dreaded place. They will not die because of your trivial entertainment-based demands. The orchestrator then suddenly buries both of his claws into my ankle, causing me to erupt with a devastating howl of agony and physically stumble. My foot no longer in his chest as I fumble around to the side, only barely catching myself from falling over. He rises and attacks just as I regain my balance, throwing several blows to both my chest and face before I fall, some of my blood coating his snout as he snarls near my face. Once I'm on my back, he continues wailing and slashing, and then wrapping his reptilian hands around my throat and beginning to squeeze, restricting my breathing just as I had done to him only moments ago, my body falling weaker from all the damage that I had taken. I put a stop to this, mustering the strength to reach over and grab him around the sides. I throw him upwards off of me, propelling his body about 10 feet or so above mine. This opens up an opportunity. I steady myself, embedding my claws within the ground as gravity pulls him right back down to me. I time it just right, throwing my face forward and viciously headbutting the airborne reptile, much harder than the first time. He's thrown to the left side, sliding along the floor of the arena while laid flat on his abdomen. Dust and rock residue dispersing as we cause more and more destruction. The both of us struggle to get to our feet. Dozens of cuts and gashes all across our bodies. Neither of us can help but growl and complain. I take a look at the floor, seeing the small piece of the orchestrator's tail that I had sliced off mixed with a pool of my blood. Perhaps I overestimated you. You will be just another in a long line of fools who have tried to face me and lost gravely. I will mount your head in the weapons room, Brawn, he taunts, seemingly going back to his previous statement of not being a fight to the death. I don't waste time responding. I instead use every last bit of energy and strength I have left to dash over to Genjin's corpse grab the sword that he had tried to use against Arya, and then lunge. The sword pierces through the orchestrator's right leg, as he lets out a scream like never before. I release my grip on the blade, letting it stay in place as he writhes and howls. This, of course, only making the metal burrow deeper in his flesh the more that he moves. I then rise to stand up straight, watching him as he squirms with the sword still implanted in his leg. Do you yield? I asked once again, my tone far more impatient than the first time. If you kill me, you can rule. I didn't tell you ever, he begins. I reach down and grab him yet again, raising him up until his eyes are level with mine. I will not kill you if you yield, I utter. No room for debate left in the way that I ordered him. He stays quiet not wanting to respond and admit defeat. So, instead, I reach down with my free claw and drive the sword deeper, making him shriek even louder than previously. You have one last chance to yield. If your next words are not you admitting defeat, I will drive this sword through your heart. My seconds are precious and you're wasting them. There's a silence, not only between the orchestrator and I, but the crowd and the spectator stands as well 
giving the arena a temporary eeriness as he is deciding what his answer will be. I can sense it, his great hesitance in uttering what has to be said next. Every fiber in his being holding back the words. If I could have dealt with it another way, I would have. I, he stutters, still in distress from his injuries. But he wasn't alone. I could feel every nerve of mine as if it were up in flames. I yield. Immediately, the arena is bombarded with all sorts of cries and cheers, most of them being the chanting of my name, even more intensely than ever before. I had won, but not without suffering plenty of abrasions myself. He had put up a truly devastating brawl. There are many points where I was sure he might have defeated me. Truth be told, I was feeling weak, but I knew that it was worth it. I was desperate to make it back to Earth. I needed to do everything in my power to speed that up. The fight would have gone on far too long without me picking up Genjin's sword, more than likely to the death. I would not yield and do my friends as long as I could draw a breath. I then grabbed the sword and pulled it from Orchestrator's leg as two of these sorcerers entered the arena, tossing it over to the side uneventfully. He, of course, screams once again more of his blood spilling at our feet. These sorcerers begin to approach the two of us, knowing what now had to happen. But I hold out a claw, signaling for them to stop for just a moment. I take a glance over at the arena, circling the circumference with just my eyes alone, looking at all the life forms as they look back at me. From now on, only those who choose to fight willingly in the Annihilation Realm will be put into this arena. You will no longer enslave any being for your own entertainment, man, cryptid, or otherwise, I command, raising the volume of my voice as loud as I possibly can, desperate for every single creature to hear me clearly. Everyone stands to attention, listening to me as I speak, some even unnecessarily bowing in submission, making the mistake of thinking I was the new ruler. So far, I had seemed to have gotten their attention with my words. This leader of yours is not the fair ruler he pretends to be, but I will spare his life as mercy. I do not have time to stay and fight. I was never meant to be here to begin with. But if I catch word of the current ways of being reinstated, I will find a way to come back, and I will make sure those responsible are dealt with. I then motioned for both of these sorcerers to step forward and finish their short march over to the both of us. I then demand them to first heal the orchestrator's wounds, keeping my eyes locked in his as they do so. It was this that he seemed grateful for. You're coming with me, back to Earth, I demand of him, to which he attempts to protest, but I inform the lizard that it is my terms for sparing his life. Once he is repaired and back to his full strength, these sorcerers then shift their attention over to me. I naturally tell the orchestrator to stay close, not wanting him to run or try to escape last second. Both of the sorcerers then begin to recite whatever spells in their alien language, a green aura surrounding me, coming from seemingly nowhere as it engulfs my body. I am lifted just a few inches off the ground, allowing me to slightly levitate as the aura encircles me. 
It isn't long before all my cuts and lacerations were healed. Slowly closing up as I watch, this had to be the most powerful form of magic I had come across in over a decade, healing me far faster than my natural ability to do so. I get a rush, a surge that flows through all my veins unlike anything I had ever felt before. Not only was I healed back to my prime state, but I was enhanced far beyond that, feeling more powerful than ever before. My appearance seemingly stays the same, however, there is one cosmetic shift. My skin. It had turned red, leaving behind my previous midnight blue for a scarlet shade. My joints still shined at the edges and everything else remained faithful to my structure before, but I was now red. The spell ends and the green aura fades, dropping me back down to my feet. I can't help but take multiple glances of intrigued curiosity at my now scarlet-colored skin. Mesmerized by such an inessential transformation, the orchestrator then slowly progresses closer, looking me over as if he had seen this thousands of times before, unimpressed by the magic of the sorcerers. You may as well now call yourself Superior Brawn, he tells me, still a small hint of bitterness in his voice. It's still just Brawn, I shoot back. It will always be, no matter my power. I then turn my head over to these sorcerers once more, and being slightly caught off guard by just how fast I move now. I do gain some control of my pivoting speed, although it was difficult to adjust at first. Send me home, and the orchestrator with me, I tell the both of them, to which they nod their heads. I grab the orchestrator by the arm and keep him near me as the sorcerer begins the same process he had done with Arya. This time, a red aura, similar in color to my new pigmentation, whirls its way around the orchestrator and I. This time, I hear the screams of my friends, John, Jenny, and even Arya as they are torn to pieces. I see the Pine Runners, the ones on the earth surrounding us. Hundreds upon hundreds of them, while Yubel and the five-headed witch stand behind the horde-like leaders of an army. I'm able to fight it this time around, ignoring all the negative stimuli during the travel process. It's not long before I open my eyes and find myself surrounded by trees, bushes, and rocks. The specific pattern of them I in fact recognized. It was the forest right across from the spa. I could hear gunfire, screams of existential dread and terror, triumph, and battle cries. All sorts of chaos unfolding. The smell of pine more than palpable. Its potency higher than it had ever been previously. Do I truly have to stay here? The orchestrator asks, walking up next to me as I press forward, getting a look at his new surroundings. Yes, I don't truly care if you join in the fight with us. But that world is better off without you. You took creatures from all over the universe and forced them to battle to the death. But now, that is no longer the case. Those who fight there will do so by choice from now on. I'm aware some of them wanted to duel, like Thaw, but many of them also did not, and I will not tolerate it. Those beings are not just for your entertainment. The orchestrator then looks at the ground. His slimy tongue slided along the outside of his jaw as he contemplates his response. 
but what is my purpose now without the Annihilation Realm? What do I even do with my existence? I was a leader there. They all worshipped me. Saw me as a god. I turned to face him directly before applying. Both of her eyes meeting as the moonlight gleams down from the canopy of trees overhead. If you promise to never enslave another cryptid again, I will see to it that you have a place among my friends and I once we stop this madness. And none of us are gods. We are creatures who kill, eat, survive, and hunt. Commanding other beings to follow your will does not make you better than them. The orchestrator then looks out past the tree line, his webbed hands loosening. He sighs, accepting the idea that the both of us were creatures who came from two entirely different scenarios. Thank you for your mercy, Braun. I shouldn't have delayed you from returning home to those you hold dear. And if what you see is true, how do I help? Earn my place amongst your people. Maybe you're right. Maybe they are better off without me. You have honor. You are not fully corrupted. There is far worse on this world and every world. And I should thank you for making a deal with me and allowing Arya to leave. As well as this new power. But I'll show you the conflict. We have to hurry. I say. Dropping down on fours and sprinting through the forest. I nearly crash multiple times as I charge forward, having to get used to my newfound speed. I'm much more swift than before by at least triple the amount, and even then, I felt like I had plenty left to spare. Hold just a bit. I hear the orchestrator call from far behind, which coincidentally allows me to get an idea of how much better my hearing is now. It is only seconds before I break through the tree line and see the spa. Or at least, what was left of it. Now it was just barely standing up compared to how it was before Arya and I had left. Before me was a siege, and all-out war between multiple parties. One side of the spot completely collapsed onto the ground, as an explosion had just taken place, smoke still coming off all the materials. There were hundreds, maybe even over a thousand of the pine runners all running around, jumping in animalistically, throwing their limbs in unpredictable directions. Above them was the five-headed witch, her eyes still as green as acid in a vat. She was currently in a battle with Arya, using her telekinesis to throw a collection of rubble in her direction as Arya moved to evade it. But what caught my attention the most was the fact that I saw men in black, fully geared with body armor and night vision goggles on, unloading every bullet they possibly could from the assault rifles into mowing down the pine runners as they kept coming nonstop. But their rapid movements made it more difficult to hit proper kill shots. The agency. They found us. Most of the agents were standing toward the direction of the spa. Two of them perched on the collapsed rubble as they fired their rifles at the pine runners sprinting toward them. Sir, we need reinforcements and more ammo. There's too many of them. One shouts desperately into his radio. It seems as if, for the time being, they were actually helping us. But I wasn't optimistic that this alliance would last long. Still, despite my previous conflict with them, we could surely use their help for now. I sniffed the air, discovering both John and Jenny's scent, but I wasn't able to pick up Ubel's, 
indicating that he had more than likely fled the area for the time being, or was doing something to mask it. I dived into the massive crowd of pine runners, tearing through dozens and dozens of them as they jumped and pounced on me, ripping three in half, taking six with only one swipe of my claws, which had now grown even sharper than before. This had made me sure that not even titanium could stand up to them now. One of the pine runners in particular had latched himself onto my chest. I retaliated by effortlessly grabbing and throwing him off, sending him nearly half a mile away into the forest. Holy hell, I hear one of the agents say as he lays his eyes on me. That's freaking 16A. What happened to his skin? A few of the stray bullets hit me in the waist area through the crowd of the pine runners. I, of course, looked down, expecting to see myself bleeding profusely as a result. But no, I don't. Instead, I lay eyes upon the indented bullets that had failed to pierce my skin, proving to me that I was now seemingly bulletproof, even from the armor-piercing rounds. I continued slashing and ravaging my way through the pine runners, after comprehending the revelation. The moss green of their blood getting all over me as I ripped them to shreds. No, no, no. I hear the agents by the rebel scream. A few dozens of the pine runners break off from the main army and swarm them as their rifles click. No ammo left. One attempts to grab a grenade launcher but has its arm brutally broken by a pine runner, awkwardly falling onto it as they converged. I leaped over as many of them as I could, throwing them into the air, to the left and right, anywhere to get them out of the way. It proves tedious, but I know what I had to do. But surprisingly enough, the orchestrator jumps in, letting out a battle cry of his own as he takes on his share of pine runners, slicing them up rather gruesomely, tearing them clean in half, and even impaling them on his scaly arms. While we now differed in our power levels, I secretly considered him my combative equal when it came to skill. Die, you hideous tree beast. He vocalized quite sternly while going on his own miniature rampage through the horde. But I see Arya losing miserably to the five-headed wedge, prompting me to command the orchestrator. Go, help Arya now. I shout through all the chaos. I make it to the agents as they're on their backs, the pine runners punching, slapping, and scratching away at them. They would have been long dead had it not been for their body armor and gear. One of the pine runners attack, I grab him and I lift him up, before swiftly cutting the creature in pieces, using his leftover body mass to swat the others away and fling them far from the agent and I. Oh god, the agent to the left exclaims. 16A, is that really you? I don't respond as I continue to bash and pummel the other pine runners, most of them either being instantly crushed or flung dozens of feet away, some even landing into the main horde in the middle of the road. Once enough of them had been warded off, I grabbed the two agents and leapt to the top of what was left of the spa building, setting them down on the cracked surface of the roof. You will refer to me as Braun, or I will help you no further, I announce to which both of them nod their heads. Now, how did you find us? At first, the man on the right stutters, still holding his broken arm and gritting his teeth. The girl with all the heads, the geeks at Site 12, tracked her here using a radiation detector. She gives off a lot of it. 
And we got here and were swarmed by all these dang tree people. They've already killed nearly our entire team thanks to her, but I think they'll be sending backup soon. She's powerful. We need to work together to stop her, I say, sharing a look between the both of them. But wait. The other agent speaks up. Our orders to kill you, Dr. John, and the Wendigo still stand. You will help me save the others, I growl. And should John or Arya come to harm because of any of you, I will see to it that you meet the same fate as Dr. West. I then leap off the top of the roof and follow the scent of John and Jenny as more of the agency's reinforcements show up. Hearing multiple vehicles down the road and a helicopter overhead, making their way to the battlefield, arriving much sooner than I had anticipated beforehand. There must have been a facility nearby that I was unaware of. I get down on all fours and crawl along the ground. John and Jenny's scent seems to be coming from underneath the spa inside the basement. But I had to hurry. The remaining parts of the structure wouldn't last much longer. I scurry my way around another wall that had been blown open and I head inside. Seeing the remains of the interior slowly beginning to crumble and collapse in on itself. I moved down the stairs, inching my way across the ceiling and picking up the scent of some of the black-robed people. I can hear their breathing as well, and it's slow for the time being. We need to get them out of here. This place won't hold much longer, one of them announces, allowing me to hear him through the door. Both of them? You've only said that we needed John alive. We can just kill the girl and be done with it. The door at the bottom of the stairs is made out of solid oak, reinforced by having a metal bolted lock in the front. The bolt lock hadn't been there before, but I had assumed it was something that they had added later on after holding up here. I tear the bolt off and knock the door down in two swift motions. It falls, revealing the rather large basement. The walls and floor are dull gray, looking cracked and just as unstable as the rest of the building above. Nothing on these supply tables or the shelves. There's a ten members of the black-robed people, all holding jagged and rusty blades, more than likely carrying a multitude of diseases on them. Part of me had even pondered if that was on purpose. They turn, looking at me in complete and utter shock. And, as expected, Yubel is not there. But John and Jenny are in the far left corner, both tied up and restrained, with gags in their mouths as well. John is still badly bruised with his eyes swollen from his fight with Yubel before Arya and I were banished to the Annihilation Realm. Kill him, and commands one of the black robes as the nine others charge their way over to me with their knives raised. I immediately get to work. The first man does a straightforward dive, attempting to plunge his knife into my thigh. I grab him, throwing him up into the ceiling and cracking it. He falls to the floor immediately afterwards, holding his side as he whimpers. I grab two more, slamming their heads together and then scaling the wall after they fall to the floor unconscious. Once on the ceiling, another black robe jumps and swings his blade. I counter by swiping my claw at him in response, severing his right hand. He screams, holding the now red stump and doing everything in his power to stop the bleeding, as I snatch up another, bringing him up to eye level, and then sinking my teeth into the side of his arm, tearing off a sizable strip of his flesh. After letting him go, I dash across the ceiling and drop down, 
finishing off the last few by uneventfully throwing them into the walls and causing them to black out. One in particular crashing right through some drywall after I swung him to my left. I get to both John and Jenny, first being extremely careful to remove their gags without cutting their faces with my claws. Thank you so much. Boy, am I glad to see ya. Jenny celebrates as I cut the restraints. But what, uh, what happened to your color? It's so good to see you again, big guy, John adds. You will. He ran into the forest once the agency showed up. And I don't know when you turn red, but I like the new look. He nods, trying to add some comedic relief to a tense situation, as he always did. But it was only recently that I began to possess a firmer grasp on the concept. As expected of such a coward like him, he will pay for what he has done to you, John. For what he's done to all of us. They both get to their feet, dusting off their clothes and checking themselves for any extra wounds. We must go. Arya and the orchestrator can't hold off the witch by themselves for long. I inform them urgently, turning to lead the two of them out when I feel John's hand graze my arm. I stop, nearly causing him to fall over before turning around to make eye contact. Braun, he says, his veins bulging. I can sense his rage, his undying passion of relentless anger, but relentless anger that was more than justified. Let me kill him. I want you, bull. For Nalita. I pause for a moment, pondering whether or not I thought of it as an intelligent idea. But after everything he had been through, this was truly more of his fight than mine. I will then remember John. You're my greatest friend. You always will be. I reply, trying to look elsewhere. The brain and the brawn. He smiles. I then hold up my claw, spreading my fingers apart, careful to make sure that he will only make contact with the blunt spots. John high-fives my claw, causing Jenny to smirk at and comment on our interaction. Two peas in a pod, she acknowledges softly. Suddenly, these supports of the basement begin to snap. Chunks of the ceiling dislodge and fall to the floor, crashing all around us and dispersing dust throughout the expanse. Without further questioning, I grab both John and Jenny and run back up the stairs and into the main area of the spa, the structure only falling and coming apart even more by the second. I myself was hit multiple times in the head with debris. I get to the very edge and toss John and Jenny out, what used to be the front door before the remainder of the roof collapses in on me, temporarily burying me underneath multiple tons of concrete, marble, and rebar. With only a little bit of a strain, I use mostly my back to hoist up all of the rubble up and off of me, roaring triumphantly as I bust my way through and land between John and Jenny after lunging forward. Gosh, what have you been juicing up on? John recoils. Good you got it though, we're gonna need it. I look ahead, seeing that well over two dozen agents had arrived and had been deployed, firing into the massive horde of pine runners. Their green blood sprays and spreads all around as the bullets tear through them. Of course, some are still able to swarm and overrun a few agents, but not enough to make much difference. Give us each gun now, John shouts towards one of the agents, referring to him and Jenny. The agent surprisingly does so, throwing both John and Jenny submachine firearms from his weapons belt. 
I hear an abrupt cry of agony, turning my head to see the orchestrator barreling out from some of the pine runners while holding his left arm, a moderate sum of blood on his claws. I would advise you to improve your aim, he grimaced, looking at John. And who might you be? Jenny grills, bashing one of the pine runners over the head with her gun, before continuing to spray into the horde. New guy, huh? John asked rhetorically. Hey, sorry about that, by the way. Just not in the best headspace. It's quite all right. The orchestrator replies without answering the questions. I shall continue the slaughter of these wretched creatures. I told you to help Arya. I said with a rather short-fused response. Oh, believe me, I was. But the flying woman did not appreciate my efforts. She threw me back into the belly of these beasts with her cursed mind powers. In the distance, I could see one of the agents inside a metallic suit of some sort, fitted to her body. She points her right arm forward at the five-headed witch, a cannon of some sort emerging. A missile then shoots out, catching the witch off guard while she has her attention focused on Arya. It explodes, sending her flying back while still hovering in the air. Although she survives the blast, turning and looking at the agent as she blasts off the ground, with rocket-powered boots from the ground and flies toward her. The five-headed witch smiles and then utilizes her telekinesis to crutch the woman inside her own suit. She just barely has time to scream before dying from the rapidly increasing pressure, all of her bones snapping and splitting as her limbs are broken. I can hear it, everything from her femur to her skull being crunched like fall leaves. I bash and tear my way through the horde, Laying my eyes on Arya who attempts to lunge at the witch before the grasp on the ground suddenly extends upwards and wraps itself around her arms, pulling her back down. You survived the annihilation realm, you horrid, filthy, and mindless creature. The witch insults while staring down at her. But you will not survive me. I grab one of the empty transport trucks and throw it with all my might at the five-headed wedge. My claws leaving deep scratches on the reinforced metal as the truck is propelled through the air, away from me and in her direction. With her focus elsewhere, it connects, the front of the cab smashing right into her body mass and gravity pulling both the truck and her right to the ground. They collide into the beaten up road asphalt and cracked pavement being sent in every direction possible. Two of the agents approach me, one of them finishing up taking out a few pine runners that were right behind him. I knew that they wouldn't hold the witch for long, but it was enough to free Arya from her magic for the time being, which was my main objective of the action. He's got her pinned down. Someone blow the truck. The one to the left shouts. The attack helicopter then fires a rocket from above. The truck, of course, explodes in a fiery burst of smoke and debris, the blast itself causing me to cover my ears due to the agony of these sound waves pounding away at my skull. You know, I'm gonna be honest with you, 16A. I don't know why the director wants us to kill you so much. You're not so bad. Came the agent who gave the order to blow up the truck. Arya then approaches, walking up next to the agent opposite to the one who spoke. He shifts his stance and recoils, caught by a horrific surprise due to the sudden presence of a Wendigo standing right next to him. Jesus! He practically screeches. Watch where you're going, ugly. I grab him by the collar, raising him up in order for his eyes to meet mine, 
His comrade doesn't seem phased, more or less knowing that the man had brought it upon himself. You will watch how you speak to her, or this alliance ends now, I grumble, bringing his face closer to mine. Alright, alright, I'm sorry, just put me down, he begs, to which I simply drop him in retaliation, making him grunt as he lands on the ground below, nearly falling over before regaining his balance at the last second. The four of us turn as the remaining rubble of the truck is catapulted into the sky, even past the clouds and into orbit at first glance, revealing the sizable crater below that had been left behind from the explosion. The five-headed witch reveals herself to be alive still, floating up above the rest of us and still maintaining that same sinister grin on her main head, wanting to taunt us about how futile our efforts truly were. I was created to command all of you. Soon you inferior beings will serve Ubel just as I have. You will find true purpose in bowing to him. She announces before a tree on the side of the road is ripped right from its roots, now levitating right next to the wedge. Blindly serving others is never true purpose. You're a pawn and you don't even know it. I fire back, stepping forward in front of Arya and the agents. Silence, you horrid beast. She howls at me before telematically throwing the tree at the others and me. The agents open fire on her after I swim my claws upward and slice the trunk clean in half. However, one of the larger sized branches ends up impaling the agent on the right through his chest. He of course chokes and coughs as blood flows down the branch and drips onto the ground below. Had he been one of those ones wearing the metallic suits, he surely would have survived but the sheer speed that branch had traveled at made the more generic body armor irrelevant. Not to mention, I was sure the witch had some influence behind it. The other had survived, still pelting the witch with bullet after bullet. I ran toward her on all fours and leaped into the air, to which she countered by slamming me into the ground right in front of her, as if I were nothing more than a mere insect. She then levitates the two halves of the trunk that I had sliced in half, and piles them on top of me while she deals with the others. This doesn't deter me. I hoist each half of the trunk off of me without much resistance, jumping upwards and catching the witch by surprise due to her grabbing her by the left bottom head, or what should have been her left foot. I repeatedly sling and bash her into the ground, first in front of me, then the left and then the right, each time applying more force and causing her to sink further into the earth. But my efforts aren't enough. After I had slammed her for about the eighth time, she was able to regain her focus and use her powers to hurl me into the forest away from her. I crash and batter through the trunks of multiple trees, most of which had fallen and tumbled over onto the ground after I had smashed through them. A few were large enough to make the ground itself vibrate. I roll over on my side for several feet before piecing my claws into the dirt. They cut through grass, rock, and tree root. After, I ended up getting back to my feet and looking around. I noticed something rather odd. I discovered these surroundings to be somewhat unfamiliar. I hadn't ever been in this part of the forest before, making me wonder just how far the witch had thrown me. Not far in front of me is a small pond, although it wasn't that fact alone that caught my attention. No, I spotted ripples in the water and I heard something beneath the surface, something that was trying to hide, perhaps even mask its scent, 
The ripples appeared as if something had seemingly broken the surface just seconds ago, entering the water extremely recently, recently enough to be noticed. I creeped my way along the ground toward the edge of the pond, looking beneath the waves and spotting who or what had been trying to cloak his presence. I slowly inched forward inside the water, feeling all sorts of weeds and aquatic plants brush past my flash as I tread in the direction of what I had laid my eyes upon. I get to the exact spot from which the ripples had originated from, reaching a clawed on and grabbing the source from beneath the surface. A splash accompanied the movement as I raise it above the surface. Yubel. He struggles and attempts to kick and fight his way out of my hold after I lift him from the water, attempted to squeeze while my claws are around his throat. Only the littlest bit of force and I would choke the life out of him, or pierce his jugular. Either way, it was more than he deserved. Well, you got me, he cackles. Freak. John told me how much you hate that word, but I know why you do. It perfectly describes what you are. A tall, skinny disgust. I cut him off, reaching down and stabbing one of my fingernails into his right kneecap, making him thrash under my grip, even more so than before as blood flows its way down his chin. Maybe I should burn the Wendigo too. Have you watch and listen to her scream? I don't know why you care for her so much. That sack of rotty meat. She's a monster. As I said, I only see one monster here. I then sling Yubel to the side. He travels for nearly 40 feet before his back slams into the trunk of a girthy oak tree, causing him to howl from what I gathered as a significant injury to his back. He coughs up a moderate pool of blood to the side while he slumps downward, unable to get to his feet without experiencing great agony. Nonetheless, he still mentally pushes past it in order to taunt me and provoke my rage. I thought I would have been long dead by now. He pauses, coughing once more. But it appears you haven't kept your promise. What happened to no hesitation? I lunge over and grab him picking him up and slinging him over my shoulder. But he doesn't fight it as I expected. You are scum. Never have I come across an entity filled with more evil and hatred than you. I won't be the one to carry out your death. No, I'll leave that to Dr. John. You stole this child, burned her alive, and turned her into the monstrosity that has now taken dozens of lives. Enslaving cryptids like they're your pets... Cutting your throat would be far too merciful of a fate for you. With Yubel on my shoulder, I head back towards the battle, and so far it had seemed as if we were coming out on top. The Pine Runner's numbers had been decreased significantly. Now, although the orchestrator and Arya had kept the five-headed witch distracted for the time being, she continued to display that she was far too powerful for them to fight alone. They weren't successful at dealing much damage to the witch herself, mainly getting toyed with and tossed around by her. We needed to figure out a solution soon, or we were all in grave danger. John and Jenny are still borrowing ammo from the agents as they continue to shoot and kill the remaining hundred or so of the Pine Runners, thinning them out to a pathetic number in comparison to before. But the witch, she's something different entirely. She continues to tear down the agency's helicopters from the sky, Smash and crush their trucks and thrust them into the air, and quite literally rip some of the agents themselves apart, 
either in half or something even more grotesque. I had noticed how she subtly commands most of the pine runners to mostly stay away from John, because I remember Yubel's words, the ones he said to John after brutally beating him in a bare-fisted battle. You're lucky that I can't kill you. The remaining agents continue to focus a lot of their fire on the five-headed witch now, seeing as the pine runners' numbers had dissipated so significantly. A group of them attempt to leap onto me while I'm carrying Yubel, but I use my claws to make quick work of them as soon as their feet leave the ground, their mossy green blood blending in with some of the grass below before it flowed its way onto the old road. I get close enough to John. His face immediately goes sour at the sight of Yubel. He grips his weapon, grating his teeth and his veins nearly bursting right through his skin. To say anger was palpable within him was an understatement. You. John snarls as I drop Yubel onto the ground, to which Yubel seems unbothered by, accepting his incoming doom. Not even trying to run or fight, but I'm sure part of that was due to me manhandling him earlier on. You'll all lose. None of you will ever find peace, freedom, or catharsis, even in my death. I will rip this world from you. Yellowstone, Redwood, Wolf Lake, we're everywhere. Yubel laughs apathetically, still complaining from the pain in his back. My death means not- John then open fires his weapon on Yubel, unloading dozens and dozens of bullets into the broken man, his beard and hair being drenched into his own blood while John yells triumphantly. That's for Nalita. He barked before, spitting on his now deceased body kicking it as well for good measure. I barrel back into the last of the pine runners and assist Arya and the orchestrator with the wedge, the latter of which leaps up and lands a kick, to which she responds by lifting a massive slab of earth out of the ground and burying him in it, after collapsing these sides together with her powers. I pick up and throw a few corpses of the pine runners at her as a distraction, before reaching up and grabbing her by the leg. She deflects by flying further upwards and then telekinetically smashing a collection of charred rubble into me from below. Maria runs up from behind and strikes, landing a good swipe on the witch's right thigh, but the wound heals instantly, and Arya is hurled to the left and into one of the destroyed transport trucks. This situation was quickly becoming dire. Two more of the agents in the metallic suits attempted to step up. One got two swings in before being crushed inside his own suit, and then used as a human battering ram against his comrade. The final helicopter fires its machine gun turrets at the wedge. She wields her powers to bend them back and cause them to fire at the pilot, instantly tearing him apart and having the helicopter crash by extension. You killed my master, she violently bellows. You will all suffer. Once again, I notice that she is still ignoring John, only further proving that she truly did need him to stay alive. We all grapple and used our best efforts against the witch for several more minutes, throwing debris, lacerating her with claws, and pelting her with bullets and missiles. But she either counters or shrugs it all off. Even with my newfound power, we are all seemingly hopeless against her. She flies over to me in particular at full speed, I grab and shove her under the ground, making her body indent the dirt as she slides along, but she is unbothered by this, throwing me off and making me somersault backward several times before I crash into the collapsed ruins of the spa.
John comes over to my aid as he sees that I'm heavily dazed, my head tilting from side to side as I have forced a recovery, needing to get back to the battle as soon as possible. Braun, he runs over. Are you good? I hoist myself up, attempting to shake off all the punishment that I had received. I can still fight. I feel like I have plenty of it left within me. But I can't help but wonder if this was a battle that I would win, no matter how hard I fought. I have to keep trying. I cannot let her emerge victorious. I respond before beginning to walk back over to the chaos unfolding, not far from him and I. I don't think that you can beat her. And I don't want you to kill yourself trying. John, please. I have no other options. She will tear through everything in existence. I say, after training to make eye contact. John pauses, sighing before a frown plasters itself on his face. His breathing heavy from all the exertion as he grips his side. A minuscule cut in his hand. You've saved me countless times. You convinced me to get out of that hell that was working for the agency. Now let me save you for once. You remember what Yubel said, right? He needs me alive. I'm the witch's lifeline and anchor. Without me, she can't exist. Plus, I read it in that book too. As John finishes speaking, the witch pulls one of the transport trucks forward and crushes an agent underneath it, giving him no time to scream or display any signs of terror. But I quickly realize what he's implying. At first, being unable to speak in response to what it is he was hinting at. But I soon found the words. Words that I thought I would never have to say. Not to him. No, John. I will not let you die. We can defeat her. We just have to try harder. John takes a few steps back, slowly shaking his head. Not like we usually do. I've served my purpose, Bron. You're my best friend. Always will be. I can never repay you for all that you've done for me. I know that Nalita is gone, but that thing isn't her and never will be. But at least, she didn't have to grow up in this ruthless world. John, I snarl, stepping closer as he quickly raises his gun up to his chest and pulls the trigger before I can snatch it from his grasp. No, I cry out, loud enough to catch the attention of nearly everyone in the area. Most of them turning their heads to see what had taken place. John then falls to the ground, blood leaking past the material of his sweater. Some of it bubbles its way up to his mouth and dripping past his bottom lip to his chin. I grab the gun, and carelessly snapping it in half before sliding my claws underneath John's body and lifting him to hold him in my arms, careful to not cut his back. John, you fool. You will not perish like this. I yell obnoxiously. Why would you do that? John slowly adjusts his head and looks at me, on the verge of taking his final few breaths before putting a hand on my shoulder and smiling through the pain. He seemed oddly at peace with his death so close, so certain. Some of his blood staining my arms as I held him against me, feeling his heartbeat slow itself little by little. The brain and the brawn... He coughs weakly, before I feel his muscles go limp. He no longer moves. His chest no longer goes up and down for him to breathe as his eyes close, sealing his fate. I don't make any noise. I just continue to stare at his corpse as Jenny runs over, 
speechless when she lays upon the shocking sight. Her gun dropping as well as her mouth. She, like me, is unable to say anything for the time being. The witch then lets out an ear-piercing shriek from behind, causing everyone to turn their heads. Everyone except me. It goes on for several seconds, changing in pitch and volume multiple times. Nothing but pure, unfiltered agony as she dies. Once her screams do stop, however, there is a loud, distorted sounding explosion. But I still don't look. I just keep my unmoving gaze focused on the body of my best friend. Jenny approaches closer standing right next to me as I feel her hair touch my waist. I can hear her heartbeat slowing, her breathing growing more concentrated. I... I'm so sorry, she pronounces weakly, turning to look up at me as the words leave her lips. I don't respond. I just continue to stare into John's eyes, the eyes of the first human who ever showed me true kindness, compassion, or empathy. The body of a man who displayed great strength in both his intellect and his courage. I hear the orchestrator approach as well, groaning from his supposed injuries due to fighting the wedge. He doesn't say anything. He just simply points his snout toward the ground, more than likely feeling as if it was not his place to comment, but I would have welcomed it, so long as it was positive. Finally, Arya arrives to join the rest of us, appearing more concerned for me than everyone else, and she maintained her gaze in my eyes while I kept mine on John. But then I hear a voice from behind, a voice that I hadn't heard in over a year now, a voice that was the symbol of everything I had once left behind. A voice that I now hated almost as much as Yuval's. Ted Bowser, the director of operations. The threat's been exterminated. High five yourselves, get a beer, pat yourself in the back or whatever the hell you idiots do to celebrate. I don't much care. I guess we'll just leave the bodies for the crows. I slowly placed John's body under the ground and then turn and sprint toward the collection of black armored SUVs, right for the director of operations. He doesn't even get a chance to speak further before I reach inside the SUV and pull him right out. Shattering the window with my claws, I grab him by the shoulder. You did nothing, I exclaim. Not a single thing. You don't protect your care for this world. You never have and never will. And I shout, more furious than ever before. Because of your horrendous methods and ideals, John is dead. He stopped the witch. All you do is give orders to others. The agents gave their lives and defeated the Pine Runners while you safely sat far away, watching them all die gruesome deaths as you always have. And because I had threatened their symbol of authority, other agents raised their weapons at me, but I don't care, not even a little bit. Ah, uh, 16A. Ted whimpers from my squeezing of his shoulder. Didn't think I'd ever see you again. Where'd you get the new look? He says uneventfully, which only boils my blood even more. You treated him terribly. You're the reason that he left the safety of the facility and entered this unforgiving world. I growl, another tirade emerging. All of this started with you and Dr. West. You care for no one, nothing at all, only the mission. No matter how many lives you sacrifice or innocence that die... A lot of your agents have committed plenty of horrid acts on their own, but at least they tried to help. At least they weren't mindless cowards like you. 
You were supposed to be ours. He whines. You were never meant to be on your own. You are our creation. You belong to us. You'll always be an artificial freak. Your friends will die all around you because of your hilarious stupidity. Humanity will never care for you. And I will laugh as they light their torches and sharpen their pitchforks once they all know of your existence. I am not your pawn. I snarl before gripping my claw on his chin and proceeding to tear his head right off. One of the agents lowers his gun as the others gasp, just barely holding in vomit. I drop Ted's head. It rolls along the ground, standing the grass and stone with crimson. The agents cautiously step back, frightened by the gruesome execution of the director. Not that it was expected. I will not harm any of you, and this endless war between us can end now, I say to them. On one condition. The agent furthest to the right lowers his weapon, his hands shaking while gripping it. What? He questions, attempting to hide his haste. But I can still see his fingers shaking just in front of the trigger. You will leave Arya and I be. Forever, you will never hunt us again. You will give up your mission to kill or capture either of us. When you find a new director, you will tell him this. And if you don't, I will come back and you will all suffer for your injustices. What you have done here is more than honorable, but it does not excuse your killing of innocent witnesses and disposing of those you deem as unfit. Don't think I ever forgot about the people you've slaughtered many times in the name of maintaining secrecy. Since when do you give the orders, you freak? An agent on the left speaks up. Everything in me tells me not to slash his throat and be done with it, to tear him from limb to limb or smash his head into the ground, but I don't. I just turn and stare at him while baring my teeth, keeping my rage at bay despite what my instincts urge me to do. Dude, he literally just made a peace deal with us. Are you seriously trying to antagonize him? Another grills. You're right I am. I don't care how much of a piece of crap the director was. He just straight up killed him in front of us. All because he's mad and that he can't be on his own. Do you really think I'm going to take orders from this thing? This freak of nature that Dr. West cooked up. I'd rather. The agent suddenly had his rant cut short. By Arya coming up from behind and hitting him hard in the back of the head. He falls straight down and hits his chin on his assault rifle. Leave Braun alone. She commands after the brutal strike. Or I will feast on all of you alive. Have you forgotten what I am? I spread my fingers and let my claws gleam in the moonlight. Backing up Arya's threat as I looked at the other agents. But they all stood down and the others agreed. I step away, giving them the mercy that I had promised. I go back over and grab John's body, looking at Jenny as he begins to stiffen in my arms, rigor mortis now setting in. We can bury him at my farm, she suggests. I ain't been there since before they took me, but I got plenty of room for him. I can even carve a stone for him if you like. I look between Arya and Jenny, Arya slowly nodding in approval at the idea, while the orchestrator darts his eyes between the three of us. I've only known you for a short while, Bron, but you are a worthy warrior. I apologize for what I had said back at the realm. And as for your loss, I did not have a bond with this John, but I'm sure he was a fine man. A week goes by and we ended up burying John after traveling to Jenny's farm. It was much more peaceful out there, 
much more open and welcoming than all the time I had spent in forests and strange, sterilized buildings. John's grave was built towards the house. I had seen cemeteries many times, and I had been deployed to kill plenty of cryptids residing in them during my time at the agency, so I had a basic understanding of the significance before this. I walk up, looking at the stone up and down, my claws loose. I breathe slowly as the wind picks up speed. Jonathan R. Dillard, father and scientist. I hear Arya approaching from behind, subsequently making me shift my stance to look at her. He helped free me from them, she said, her snout pointed low. I'll remember him too, Bron. We all will, I reply softly. He deserved none of this, but he died a courageous hero, sacrificed his life so that we may live. Arya steps even closer, holding up her claw, to which I hold up mine as well, putting it against hers. She looks as if she wants to say something, something extremely important, but instead replaces it with a more trivial sentence. Should we hunt for something to eat? She proposes. I paused for a moment, turning to look at John's grave once more and then back at her, time itself seeming to slow down. But she was right. I had grown hungry and everything that had happened the past two weeks was exhausting to us all. Do you mind if I join the both of you? I hear the orchestrator call out. It's been decent since my last feast. Hopefully the food here on earth is just as flavorsome. Hey, I'm coming too. Plus, ain't enough cows to slaughter at the moment. A few of them starved while I was gone, Jenny proclaims, bringing along what had appeared to be a hunting rifle that had been left behind when she was taken by the black-robed people. I know that John wouldn't mind me to constantly dwell on his death and prevent myself from continuing to survive, but I knew that now nothing was ever going to be the same without him. We did end up going on that hunt and getting a respectable collection of food to eat. I caught a deer beginning to devour it as soon as it was on the ground, eating the creature to prevent any suffering. Arya came up next to me, and together we feasted in the area of the trees, watching as the evening sun approached in the distance. But John came right back to my mind, making it more difficult for me to eat in peace. So I got up, and just as I was about to drop down on all fours and crawl along the trees, I felt Arya's arms wrap around me from behind. Thank you, Bron, for everything. But I don't fight it. I simply stand there as I let her tighten her grip around my chest, staring off into the tree line. They will never hurt us again, I declare. Never again. Thank you all once again for listening to today's stories. I hope you've enjoyed. I would also like to extend a large thank you once again to today's sponsors, ExpressVPN. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mrcreeps, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. And BetterHelp. Creepscast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash mrcreeps. I hope you all have a wonderful day or night wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.